Should you ever set foot outside of the motel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. Welcome to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family, the Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, apparently there are ants in the studio. I don't know what that's about. I will let you know if I see any. But welcome back, Gerard, and we finally actually get to talk about real, tangible college football. How does that sound? That sounds wonderful. I'm really super excited to talk about real, tangible college football as opposed to projected, fictitious college football. The real, tangible college football podcast. Do you think that – does that roll off the tongue – Enough That's a mouthful, to be. but uh, considering we call this the recruiting two-star <laughs> composite podcast, is and no one no really says it, and no one really says it the correct way. Even I don't say it the correct way. So, yeah, there's a bunch of different variations for uh, the name of this podcast, which is fine. I think it's just usually people refer to as two-star. In fact, they don't even write out star; they just put an asterisk. Uh, C two. C2 asterisk is the uh, shorthand name for this one on the peristyle. Two star emojis and a mic is what my shorthand for it is on social media. So, yeah, there are a bunch of different ways to name our podcast and identify our podcast. So I'm, I'm quite okay with that. Gerard, I did have one update before we get into our show. Remember when I got freaked out because something was like a door, so like a door was squeaking behind me? Do you remember yeah. that? Yep. I, I realized what it was like 10 minutes after we hung up. It It's a like air freshener. It's like an automatic air freshener. And it just like randomly goes off and makes that little spurt sound. And it like disperse, disperses air blasts into the to the uh, the room. So that's what it was. So uh, I won't be scared this time. I just wanted to uh, I just want to let you know. Okay, well, that's good to know. I feel like uh, we already started low energy on this podcast. It's another late I, podcast. Chris is coming from practice, and it's just a low energy podcast. And granted, we don't have like anything really juicy to get into uh, in terms of uh, recruiting talk right now. It's kind of a, a lull a bit, you know, even though we got high school football games going and there were some unofficial visitors at the opener, wasn't the best turnout. I feel like we need to interject some artificial energy into this podcast we need some sound clips we need something to get this podcast rolling let's go chris what's going what do you have for us wild card bitches 
I just want to say I feel perfectly fine. I had a sandwich and I feel my energy is at a good level. I'm not super hyped. But before we get into this show, let's do a quick shout out to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Meredith Schlosser, one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That's S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate to see everything she has going on in terms of listings and other things. Thank you again to Meredith Schlosser, the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, let's get into the cold open, which is USC's biggest visitor from the first game of the season against San Jose State. We previewed it going into the week. That is four-star Quincy Orchard, Maryland edge rusher Jalen Harvey making his big return to USC, his third visit for the Trojans, his first game day visit, really wanted to see what that game day atmosphere was like. And Gerard, you mentioned... At the time, because I said, you know, he had planned to make his commitment before his senior season started, which is coming up this weekend. And you mentioned that, hey, he said this before and he has pushed back this commitment date over and over. And it seems like we have moved the goalposts once again for Jalen Harvey because he caught up with Brian Doan. Uh, shout out to Brian Doan out there on the eastern seaboard as our one of our national recruiting analyst caught up with him Jalen Harvey and he pretty much said told Brian Dome that everything sits pretty even among these schools I don't know if that was including Maryland but you know with Penn State and USC Penn State obviously had that little bit of an edge so that is a nice thing to hear as a USC fan but with him possibly delaying the commitment even further because it sounded like he did want to get out to a Penn State game, and then to a Maryland game. So, you know, you thought you were going to get the last visit, but that does not seem to be the case with Mr. Jalen Harvey. If you're even, he's leaving. That's a phrase that you often hear when you're talking about the defensive secondary. When you're talking about a cornerback lined up one-on-one against a receiver, if he's even, he's leaving because the defensive back is backpedaling. He's going through his transition, and at that point, he's got to turn in one where the receiver is able to just continue to accelerate and run forward, and the receiver is going to gain separation in that instance. In recruiting, there's something similar in that respect to if they're even, he's leaving. And if you've got an official visit or an unofficial visit where you're hosting a recruit and it's tight, there's really stiff competition among a group of schools and you get that visit and coming away from that visit, that recruits reaction, impression, opinion of his recruitment is that everything is even. It's not a good sign. And so I think for USC at this point, it's not a great sign that he's coming away from this last unofficial visit not favoring USC. You would really want to hear him say, you know, right now USC really opened my eyes. I love the visit. I have to say that they pulled ahead, but I still want to see Penn State one more time. I still want to see Maryland one more time. And then you sort of say, okay, well, that's going to be tough because they're going to make up ground more than likely with those visits. But at this point, USC's a little flat-footed. It's even. And coming away from that visit, you would want Jalen Harvey to say that USC 
is his leader. So right now, from a projection standpoint, I would have to say that Penn State is in the lead, reading between the lines of his recruitment. That's why they pay you the big bucks, Gerard. You're not here to sugarfoot. Sugarfoot? That's a song. Sugarcoat <laughs> anything. Uh, you tell it like it is, and you're here and even. He's gone, as you said. I, I butchered the, the the front rhyme you had set up. But, yeah, you really hoped that he would just be like, yeah, I'm still going to commit this coming weekend. But to see it moved and to see, you know, I'm going to go check out Penn State. And that is going to be for a whiteout game. So, you know, the atmosphere is going to be bonkers in that stadium. And then I found it funny that he just said, yeah, and a Maryland game. I'll, I'll figure out a Maryland game to go to. So we'll see if Mike Loxley can uh, surge more for Jalen Harvey. He is known to, you know, pull off an upset or two in terms of keeping a local kid local for the Terps. But, yeah, it does seem like even though he has stated it is even – you would still kind of give it to the Nittly Lions because USC did not, quote-unquote, close him. We didn't actually put him in a category. You Obviously, he would have been a closer, right, Gerard, even though this is an unofficial visit? He was in the closer category when he officially visited June 16th. So, yeah. yes, uh, he's been in the closer category for quite a while, and we can go back and look at his recruitment and coming away from his first official visit to Penn State, there was a lot of talk that Penn State was going to close the deal the week after that official visit, and he wasn't going to officially visit USC at all. But USC convinced him to still come out to Los Angeles. I was hearing after he returned that USC might have been in the lead at that point, but there's some moving parts in his recruitment. He's got his family I think that's where Maryland comes in. I think he's kind of placating a little bit by keeping Maryland in the loop. But I think it really is between USC and Penn State. And I've often heard that he favors USC and the family's more like, we'd rather you stay closer to home and it's Penn State. Something that I've heard just recently this week and talking to a few sources about Jalen Harvey is that NIL was a factor and that was what was keeping USC involved, which I have to kind of chuckle to myself knowing what we know on this side of the country and following USC and following the recruitment of various different players like Manasse Atete, Draylon Miller, some of these guys, which we know outwardly have been very, swayed by NIL. That was a major factor in the recruitments and seeing how those recruitments went away from USC. So at this point, I think that conversation is leveraging. I think if NIL is the only thing keeping USC in it right now, then it's probably going to end up being Penn State for sure. But again, you know, anything can happen. I, I don't, I, you know, if he's, if it's even, he's leaving. I'm just saying is kind of a it's kind of a funny thing. It's a correlation between, you know, real football and the recruiting process. I don't want to say that, you know, USC has no chance. There's always a possibility. But considering that he was planning on potentially shutting things down after this visit, you would have to thought that if he was wowed and USC checked all the boxes, he would have shut things down and he would have announced this week. But that's not happening. And seeing that it's lingering and it's going on, I feel like it's not a good sign for USC. Let's just put it that way. Let's just wrap it up and just say 
with all things being even after the unofficial visit this past weekend, that's not a good sign for USC. And I, I recall you talked about, you know, seeing what, what we saw him on the sideline, what sort of entourage he brings, how many people were coming with him. I only saw him really with one person, which I think was his dad. Uh, maybe there was a, a woman with him. Maybe there was his mom, but I only really he was saw with him. his mom. He was with, I, I okay. actually got pictures and uh, tweeted pictures of him with uh, his mother. I don't know exactly who that gentleman was. I don't know if that was his stepfather or, or maybe mom's boyfriend or maybe his trainer. I don't know 100% sure. I know who you're talking about. And also uh, he was with Brian Davis, who is the co-founder of California Power. California Power uh, actually brought Jalen Harvey out here for a couple of five-on-five tournaments. And they are involved with NIL and they are, uh, I don't want to say they're negotiating. I, I'm not 100% sure where they actually come in uh, with NIL, but I know that at least earlier in the year, uh, they presented uh, how they, you know, try to inform families about NIL and, and deal with NIL. And, and they had a whole showcase involving that. So they do involve themselves to some extent into the NIL process. And uh, Brian was actually there uh, with uh, Jalen uh, and his mother. And so um, there were a few people with him. I, I think the, the the positive is that he did have some family with him and he did have some family with him on the official visit back during the summer. But, you know, obviously not everything was determined at that point uh, from what he's looking for in a college. And he felt like he needed to look at these schools a little more. But again, when we talk about NIL and we see where USC's approach has been uh, with some of these players, those guys usually don't end up at USC. Um, it just in terms of, of uh, the handful of players that we know where NIL has been a, an overriding factor. And here it comes up, and I haven't really heard this much in regards to Jalen Harvey and his recruitment. Listen, he's a three-star He's not Brandon Baker. He's not even Draylon Miller. You know, he's not a top two, four, seven type of player where when you hear NIL is a factor, you know that it could be a major factor, you know, because some schools right now are very aggressive and they're going after the top rated players. Uh, Jalen, I, who I think is underrated, perfect, you know, myself personally, is still not a guy that, you know, from a ranking standpoint is, you know, going to demand you know, all this kind of attention. So again, I, I think that might be just a bit of a red herring. Maybe it's leveraging. I feel like if, again, that's the hang up, you know, with him choosing between USC and Penn State, I think inevitably he's just going to go to Penn State. Um, so yeah, not not necessarily the most positive cheery. I know people uh, get frustrated and, and angry with me because I'm not uh, perpetually optimistic about every single thing and trying to sell clicks with all of these recruitments, but that's just how it's breaking down at this point. You know, I, I always can be wrong. I do not have a monopoly on wisdom, but uh, reading between the lines and again, you know, everything sits even is not a good sign for USC coming right off of the visit. Don't sugarfoot it. Don't sugarfoot it. Do you actually know what, Sugarfoot is in reference to? No, I'm trying to remember the band in the 90s that was not Sugarfoot, but it was a band that Switchfoot? Was, huh? Switchfoot? 
No, no, no. It was sugar something. I can't remember what it was, but they were really sugar popular. Ray. Sugar Ray. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Sugar <laughs> no, Ray. I'm not, I'm not talking about Sugar Ray. Sugarfoot is apparently a Western TV show from the late 1950s, early 1960s. I think you said it was a band. I thought it was like a current band that I'm just not up on pop music. And- no, no. It's a, uh, it's a Western show from the or i'm sure i'm sure one so somebody who listens to the show remembers the the show sugarfoot so shout out if you do know that show. but no sugar ray leonard and sugarfoot are two no not sugar ray leonard sugar Sorry, ray sugar ray sugar was ray. a band in the 90s that had a really popular song and their lead singer was everywhere on mtv he was like a guy that ended up kind of going above and beyond the band in terms of his popularity but Again, sort of on the pop side of music, I didn't really follow them. But uh, if you named the song, I probably would remember the song. But I thought that's what you were referencing because you said Sugarfoot and then you said something about it being a band. I'm going, well, I don't know about them, but that doesn't mean anything because I'm not really hip on popular music anymore. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I, I, I'm very specific about my likes about music. Well, let's use the uh, the Sugar Ray drop to move us into our second topic, which is all the other visitors that were there for the opener. We had an unofficial visitor list go up in my Ghost Notes report or Ghost Notes game day, excuse me, from uh, Saturday. So I'm just going to kind of read off the guys that I did see there. and We confirmed that were there. We had three-star safety Elijah Gordon. Three-star safety, USC commit, Braylon Conley. Four-star wide receiver, Ryan Pelham, a USC commit. Three-star nose tackle, Trinidad Wilson out of Diamond Ranch. Three-star safety, Teron Williams, a 2024 Arizona commit. Four-star wide receiver, quote-unquote five-star range wide receiver, Philip Bell, 2025 class. Four-star cornerback, Dijon Lee in the 2025 class. Four-star athlete, Jayon Young. Three-star offensive lineman John Mills. Three-star cornerback Tristan Castro. Three-star quarterback Luke Huago. Huago. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Three-star edge Cameron Brown. Four-star cornerback Brandon Lockhart in the 2026 class. I believe he's the number one cornerback in 2026. So five-star caliber guy there. The first guys on that list were obviously 2024s. The big chunk in the middle were 2025s and then Lockhart at 2026. Again, that wasn't the full list, but those were kind of the notable guys that I were able to see on the sideline. Yeah, um, not a huge turnout. Uh, I think a little disappointing from what was projected uh, a few weeks earlier. Um, Again, it's not necessarily the full list of who actually showed up. Some of those guys get there late and they actually don't get onto the field or they don't come down Mm -hmm. after the game onto the field. Uh, But um, I think, um, you know, there's a couple of interesting names on there. Now I did talk to Elijah Gordon, a three-star safety out of Ranch Cucamonga this week and talked to him just a little bit about what he saw. And he had a really good review of the game. He thought uh, it was uh, very interesting how they use so much of a rotation and I think the rotation is a big deal for USC. He is going to officially visit Oregon this weekend from what he told me. And I spoke to him specifically about USC in an official visit. And according to him, Dante Williams said that they're not doing quote unquote official visits until later in the year, which would stand a reason because that's kind of the approach USC 
is normally had outside the fact that we at this point right now, we'll talk about this a little later, are expecting USC to have at least one official visit this weekend. So that between the lines tells me there's a little bit of slow play going on with Elijah Gordon. Um, and that may not uh, work for very much longer because if he's going to officially visit Oregon this weekend and Oregon puts the press on him, I think he'll commit. He's looking to commit. He's been thinking about committing. He's gotten a few more offers. And now he's kind of looking at them and going, okay, maybe I want to take a couple other visits. Texas A&M is also in there. They could offer him uh, maybe in the next week or so if he decides not to make a commitment, but they may offer him even if he does turn around and commit to Oregon. But we'll have to see what comes from that official visit to Oregon. Uh, if the Ducks really press him, I could see them potentially getting a commitment there and he would be off the board, uh, at least temporarily. You know, you never know their verbal commitments. And we say this, it, it works both ways, you know, with USC. They've got guys that have been verbally committed, like Dakota Fields, who are tweeting out fight on and trying to recruit other players to the class. And then, boom, all of a sudden they've decommitted and they're going to another school. And it happens the other way around as well. There are going to be players that are committed to other schools that are solidly committed to those schools. And all of a sudden they pop up at USC for an unofficial visit. Boom, bang, they are flipped and now they're going to USC. So we'll see how this all plays out as the year uh, progresses. But, um, yeah, Elijah Gordon, um, you know, that's going to be one to watch if he does take uh, that official visit to Oregon this weekend and they put the full court press on him. I also talked to Philip Bell uh, post unofficial visit. I talked to Dijon Lee as well uh, before the visit. I didn't get a hold of him post visit. But with Philip Bell, uh, he talked a little bit about just the rotation and how they used uh, the players and and you know, the freshmen, and, and that's always going to be something that resonates with recruits is true freshmen making an impact. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, we'll get into a little bit of a recruiting angle, which uh, I didn't write up this week. Ryan has me on um, takeaways uh, from the game right after the game. So it's uh, a little bit of um, overlap in doing both of those things. So I thought I would kind of talk a little bit more from a recruiting angle just for the podcast. But for Philip Bell, it was a, a good game. You know, he was able to get down there with his folks. Um, it wasn't anything earth shattering, you know, nothing really big. I, I would say I do get the sense that USC is the leader for Philip Bell right now. Now, there's a lot of competition for him. As Chris stated, he's a borderline five star top 10 wide receiver in the 2025 class. He is a player that has a lot of. Um, he has a lot of background with USC. You know, he knows USC beyond just the Clay Elton years and what's going on at USC right now. Um, the funny thing is, is that Oklahoma was a favorite of his kind of growing up because of the offense. He really liked how they used the receivers, moved guys around. They didn't have just outside receivers and inside receivers. They had their outside receivers playing in the slot and their slot guys playing on the outside. And now, you know, growing up a USC fan and, and, his mom is a big USC fan. You sort of have that mm. synergy with uh, Lincoln Riley's offense now at USC. And so there's actually a crystal ball in there uh, from one of the Michigan recruiting writers for USC. So, you know, even outside of the region, there's that vibe that, you know, Philip Bell is a big USC fan. And you can really tell something that I've learned a little, you know, kind of uh, trade craft is when there's 
maybe a negative narrative or there's something about a school that gets talked about in a negative fashion. And when you talk to a recruit about that, uh, they, they're sort of defending, you know, they all of a sudden, you know, they defend uh, that school and they're quick to kind of say, well, I don't really think that I think that's just overblown, et cetera, et cetera. You know, talking about the defense and even, uh, you know, unprompted kind of coming to the defense of a school. I remember my first read on that was back when I interviewed DeMarco Murray, who was coming out of Bishop Gorman as a running back. And he had just uh, visited USC for the Rising Stars camp. And I got a hold of him like a couple weeks later. And we were talking about that visit to USC and the upcoming official visit that he had to USC. And I think Oklahoma was coming off a real down year, if I recall. I think they won only like eight or nine games. And I asked them, you know, how does that impact what schools you're looking at? You know, wins and losses. Is, is that something that's uh, important to you? And he went right in talking about Oklahoma. And I didn't really even say Oklahoma, but, you know, of the schools that he was looking at and favoring at the top of his list, he kind of went right in and goes, oh, he's talking about Oklahoma because they were not very good last year. And just talked about how Oklahoma was going to get back and Oklahoma is going to be good. And I'm not worried about it because they have a great tradition. They've got great coaches. And he automatically took that sort of defensive approach to talking about Oklahoma. And that always resonated with me. And I said, oh, you know, that's, that's interesting. He really does have an emotional investment into Oklahoma. I got a little bit of that vibe from Philip Bell and talking to him. And obviously there being some criticism of the defense, some criticism of how USC played against San Jose State. They didn't cover the spread, so on and so forth. So unprompted. He sort of mentioned some things in there, and you can read the full update on the site. It's VIP, but it went up, I think, Monday. Um, some of those quotes and, and him talking a little bit about USC in that manner uh, just gave me a little bit of that vibe. So I think USC is doing really, really good with Philip Bell. I'm chatting with a couple guys, so still trying to get full updates on all of them, including Ryan Pelham, who was there. And we'll talk more about Ryan Pelham when we get to Friday Night Lights, and you also talk about Philip Bell. I did want to talk about a big boy that was on the sidelines, and guy I mentioned, nose tackle Trinidad Wilson at a Diamond Ranch. Gerard, you've seen him before, and I just want to say he immediately caught my eye. He looked like a grown man. He's listed at six foot four, 330 pounds. He's well over 300 pounds, I would say. Yeah, 330 sounds accurate. Six foot four. Maybe not, maybe maybe closer to 6'2", 6'3", but he's a big body. And I told you in the chat, I think I'm predicting him to be this year's Dejan Lafitte for you. So I, I, I foresee you heading out to a Diamond Ranch game at some point this season because he looked uh, like a legit body type, a big body defensive tackle for USC to potentially recruit locally. So... Trinidad Wilson, haven't seen him play, obviously, but just from the the eye test, uh, he passes it for me. Well, it's interesting. The first time we saw Trinidad Wilson was not last summer, but the summer before. He was at, I believe, just the Rising Stars camp, and then he was invited back for the elite camp. And he caught our eye as being one of the better performers at that elite camp. He did return this past summer and was at another elite camp. He's a guy that hasn't been recruited 
very hard, doesn't have a bunch of scholarship offers. I have seen him in person and he played well. I was kind of focused more on Dijon Lafitte because they were playing against each other in that particular game. But I mean, like you said, Wilson is a sort of can't teach big body. I don't know from the standpoint of numbers. I think the measurables in terms of quickness and in terms of speed is probably the hangup for USC. If you're recruiting him as a defensive tackle, if you're recruiting him as an interior defensive lineman, I think when you've got guys like Barry Alexander who can truly pass rush at 300 pounds, I don't know if Trinidad is that guy. Trinidad might be a little bit more of a space eater. He's quick. He's got very good hands. Oh, yeah, he's a space eater for sure. He's not a guy that's going to really play a lot outside his gap as a disruptor. And it seems like in Alex Grinch's defenses, because they stem and they move so much, that's coveted is mobility within uh, the interior defensive line and the edge. So I can see where USC would be a little hesitant. They like him, but is it like, can we really pull the trigger on this guy? Is this really the guy we're going to go after? That's an interesting prediction. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I feel like they've seen enough of him with Dijon Lafitte. I don't think he was at any camps. And I think it was really just his film that popped up where they saw it and they go, well, we need to, we need to go see more of this guy. And uh, I think they did see him during the evaluation period. So they knew in terms of his size that he was legit. You know, it wasn't one of those things where, okay, is this guy really six, two and not six, four. Is he really, you know, two 75 and not 300, because you really have to know the size of a player and then equate it to what you're seeing on film in terms of the quickness and the speed. And then you have to also equate that against the level of competition. And so they've seen enough of Trinidad Wilson where I kind of feel like if they were ready for that, that might have already happened. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I think it'd be great. It'd be, uh, um, you know, a local guy that, uh, you, know, you know, certainly with uh, Aiden Breland, they're still trying to recruit him. Uh, they have Jericho Johnson up there in Fairfield, California, who uh, they should be able to get in on an official visit during the season. I kind of think USC wants to see – what happens in those two recruitments before they probably would go after Trinidad Wilson. But mm-hmm. there is that potential that they end up there on their board and, and he might be one of those guys that is uh, next best available. Gerard, I don't really have any comments on anyone else. I will say John Mills, three-star offensive lineman out of St. Ignatius, I think up in uh, the NorCal, big dude, big dude, six foot five, 280, I think he's listed. He looks maybe pushing closer to 300, but big, solid-looking, thick guy to play. Uh, I think he's listed an interior offensive lineman, but I've been talking to him a little bit, getting his thoughts. Really likes Josh Henson, so you know maybe maybe you know an offer down the line. But yeah, John John Mills, I think is a good-looking interior offensive line based on just what I saw. He was like one of those guys. I when I go down there and I'm down on the sidelines, there are guys I immediately am drawn to especially guys I've never like kind of seen before. And John Mills was one of them. And Trinidad Wilson was the other guy. So guys in the trenches were catching my eye, uh, Gerard. Yeah. Now I would also follow up uh, from a good news angle standpoint. I think with Jayon Young and DJ Lee, I think USC leads for both of those players. Uh, I didn't, like I said, get to follow up with DJ Lee after the game. I uh, spoke to him a little bit. Uh, they went out and played Citrus Valley, which is a new high school out in Redlands, which is way out there. I, for, I always forget being an IE guy. 
the IE is big. <laughs> San Bernardino County, I think, is the biggest county in the United States. And I forget, you know, not everything even in the IE is within a half an hour, especially you, during rush hour. Are you dipping into Friday Night Lights already? Oh, well, no. I wanted to just say with Dijon Lee, we got to go see Dijon Lee and Philip Bell in person. And from a recruiting standpoint, uh, Dijon Lee showing up to USC, I, I feel like they, I think USC still has a lead for Dejon Lee. And I think they still have a lead for Jayon Young. And the thing is, here's the sort of uh, the, the connection there with the guys that USC has a good place for, that they're sort of in a very good position for, Philip Bell included, is that they have people around them who know USC beyond the Clay Helton era. They know USC for more than just what they produced on the field recently. And so I think that does hold some weight in the recruiting process, but USC obviously has to follow up with that. And then, you know, there's a lot of things with modern day recruiting uh, where you've got transfer portal, you've got NIL, you know, these things can become wild cards and recruitments. But I would say uh, with DJ and with Jayon Young, uh, who's an athlete, probably going to be a cornerback defensive back out of Sierra Canyon, a uh, good looking little player, uh, who's uh, kind of blown up here in the last year or so. You know, he's gotten quite a few more scholarship offers. Um, I think with that, it's, you know, right now it's kind of an Oregon-USC thing, but I think it's almost opposite of what it was with Dakota Fields. I think with Dakota Fields, it was Oregon early on for him. Oregon was kind of like the childhood favorite for him. And I feel like USC's kind of the childhood favorite for Jayon Young, and Oregon's kind of trying to chip away at that. They're going to try to get him up there for a game, and they're going to kind of work on him. But I think right now USC's holding serve. So for those uh, those three players, which were really, you know, when we were talking about rankings, three of the best players that were actually on campus last weekend, I think USC's in a very good position for all three. Jayon Young is listed at 5'10", 150 pounds. And I just want to say 150 pounds is like, Maybe one of the lowest weights I've ever seen listed on a, a guy's profile. I don't see yeah. 150 a lot. I don't see 150 a lot. I feel like we need to update this, but I don't see that number a lot. Jayon is slight. Uh, he's he's not a he's not a. When I say you know a, a nice little player, I mean he's he's young, and um, you know he's got to hit the weight room a little bit. Uh, but um, you know he's got some growth potential in him for sure, and he's a guy that is an impact player on a very good team on both sides of the football which I always like. I mean, that's something that I've mentioned before. I'm not a huge fan of cornerbacks that only play the cornerback position at the high school level. I think that um, it's it's a disservice to the prospect, and it also creates question marks as to their ball skills, their eyes. When you play offense, you're seeing the field a bit differently, and, and you're also having to understand play design and things that I think when you go over to the defensive side of the ball really help you mentally. You're also from a high school football level, hoping that the best player on the team is able to contribute on both sides of the football as a leader. So when you see a player only playing cornerback in high school, it reminds me a little bit of Ryan Henderson. That's when I really actually, you know, I'm telling a lie. I think it actually goes back to TJ Bryant. T.J. Bryant was a cornerback that USC recruited out of Tallahassee Lincoln, Florida High School. And I've talked about this before, but it's a good refresher for the folks out there. Tallahassee Lincoln was sort of like the late 90s, early 2000s, East Coast Long Beach Poly. They had eight to 12 
Division One athletes every year. They were producing a ton of talent, guys like Fred Rouse, uh, guys like Pat Watkins, guys that USC recruited, went all the way across the country to recruit. And USC had been striking out on quite a few Florida athletes to that point. They got Keith Rivers. That was a big deal. But Keith Rivers grew up in California. His dad was in the military. He lived uh, in Riverside up until like eight, 10 years old. And then he moved to Florida. So going after Florida natives, USC kept going after him, kept going after him, missing. They end up getting TJ Bryant, which was this huge coup. And I think he was like the number one or number two cornerback in the nation for that particular class. But TJ Bryant did not play wide receiver. Now, the excuse and the reasoning behind that was Tallahassee, it's English, Lincoln High School has so much talent that they don't have to play guys both ways. And I bought into that. I mean, in those early days, I bought into that. I go, well, you know, that's true. They've got a ton of good players and they really don't have to have guys play both ways. But when TJ Bryant got to USC, it was very apparent his ball skills were lacking, that he was playing cornerback and not receiver because he really didn't catch the ball very well. He also was tremendously finesse. He wasn't very physical. Even in bad drills, he had bad, poor, hesitant tackling skills. And so it was one of those things where, like, okay, as a a well-rounded player, he lacked so much. I mean, he was good in very certain limited ways as a cornerback, and you could – on a highlight film, you could hide so much from him. With going forward, USC recruits Ryan Henderson. And this was sort of reinforcing my thoughts on this. Ryan Henderson plays at Rancho Verde High School. He was out of the same class as Junior Pame. And Junior Pame was a tremendous athlete. Junior Pame played both ways. But Rancho Verde at that time was producing players like Ronald Powell. And they had quite a few players. And it was again said, well, they don't have to play Ryan Henderson both ways because they have so much talent that they have guys that can just play receiver and just play cornerback. But I had a conversation with the source about that. That was actually a team source that said, listen, if Ryan Henderson could play receiver and he had the ability to play on the offensive side of the ball, he would absolutely be playing on the offensive side of the ball. Mind you, let's just take offensive side of the ball off the table and say that Rancho Verde had enough talent to do that. He would be playing special teams. Like you're talking about the fastest player on the team. And Ryan Henderson actually ran a laser 4-4 at the Army underclassmen combine, which notoriously slow field, very realistic laser times, which a lot of players scratched because they're used to, you know, running their 38-yard dashes on a hand time at their high school and running 4-4-4-3. And then they get to the Army underclassmen combine in San Antonio, and these guys are running 4-7 and 4-8. And they're receivers. And they're like, oh, my God, I, I, what? You know? And we're like, listen, this is a real time, dude. This is a real time. This is not your fictitious downhill 38-yard dash. This is an actual laser time. You're, you're, you're not running times that are on par with the NFL combine. I'm sorry to break this to you, 17-year-old, but you're not able to do that. But these kids are like, you know, they've been told their whole lives that they're running 4-4. But, but Ryan Henderson actually goes to the combine and runs something like a 4-4-4. And he reps 185 a bunch of times better than linemen. So from a combine standpoint, he's out of this world. He's tremendous. And so that raises the question. 
why are you not playing this kid both ways? Well, it was told to me bluntly, listen, if he could play both ways, he'd be playing both ways. But there are other things to consider, which is why we stash him away at cornerback where we play a schedule. He's very rarely tested and not simply just because he's a really good cornerback and he's giving blanket coverage, but because we have high school quarterbacks, he just can't throw the ball. And that's something that you have to also consider when you're looking at a guy that's just playing cornerback. So don't ask me how the hell we got on this topic, but nevertheless, that is something that always is a little bit of a, oh, I'd like to see this particular player if he's at corner or even safety, quite frankly. I'd like to see you play both sides of the ball. I think there are very few instances where guys are playing just one side of the ball. They're not doing anything on special teams. They're not really contributing with the ball in their hands. If he's really that fast, he's really that good of a football player, 99.9% of the high schools out there need to be playing that player on both sides of the ball. Yeah, there's exceptions to the rule, like maybe modern day, but you got to be very wary of that. You do have to be wary that you're watching on film very limited instances from the standpoint of, you know, what are the quarterbacks they're playing against? You know, are they really being tested? Or is this just a, an, an instance where the competition they're playing against, they're not playing against teams that can really pass the ball anyways. So, yeah, there's a lot that goes into that evaluation. I'm not really sure where we started with that. I thought it was Jayon Young. I think he put us down this path. But I think that's yes, a good. Place that's to where end. it is because Jayon <laughs> plays both sides of the football. And, there you go. And that is, and you know what, Dijon Lee has started to play more offense. He got a few reps playing offense, and he actually got a lot of reps over the summer playing offense. And I think that is absolutely crucial to his development. I think it will help ball skills. It will just help you get a better overall awareness of what's happening on the football field. What are these receivers trying to do against you? Well, guess what? You know, because you play receiver now and you're in that room and you start to see the field as they see the field. I think that's very important for these kids, but it also is one of those things that if the ball skills aren't there, if there are issues athletically, if there are things that you're maybe stiff and and you can't play a certain position, those type of things are also sort of red flags that come up when players are not playing both sides of the football. There's sort of a reasoning behind that. Now, high school coaches know that. If they've got a guy that's running 4-4 and he's repping 185 20 times, holy crap, you know, it's like, again, there are very, very few high school football programs in America where that kid can't contribute on both sides of the ball. So then the question becomes, why isn't he? I knew you would bring it back, Gerard. I knew you would find your way back to where well, you, you started did. on you the You helped me back. Chris, you helped me back. You threw me a uh, – A life preserver? A life preserver. Exactly. I was thinking uh, – I was going to say lifesaver. I was thinking the candy. Um, a life preserver out there for me to, to, to bring it all back. That was an old school Gerard off the rails rant for everybody. I, I feel like I haven't done that in like a couple months. More like a couple episodes, I feel like. I feel like I could. Go, I feel like I could go back a couple episodes, and I could. I could find one if I really wanted to. But yeah, he uh, he's he hasn't gone off on a tangent like that in in a little bit. But yeah, I feel like that happens more often than you think it happens, Gerard. But let's get back on track, and we'll move on to our final topic before the break. That is, USC had a big visitor for San Jose State, and that is the unofficial visitor of Jalen Harvey. They are scheduled to have a big official visitor. For the Nevada game this weekend, their first 
official visitor of the the season of the fall season, and that is Salem four star linebacker Chris Cole. And we mentioned this a couple times, but this is the week of leading into it. He's the number sixty three overall prospect in the twenty four seven sports rankings, the number six linebacker, number fifty six in the twenty four seven sports composite. Six foot three, two hundred ten pounds, has a bunch of impressive Power Five offers. USC has uh, finagled their way into his recruitment. They've been able to get him on campus for this big September 2nd official visit. He is slated to make his commitment on September 7th. So on paper, it looks like USC will be getting the final visit for Chris Cole. The big thing is that USC has some work to do. Georgia is the projected leader for Chris Cole. They have all three of the crystal ball projections, including from Steve Wolfong and Brian Doan, the area recruiter as Chris Cole is coming from Salem, Virginia, not quite DMV. That area of Virginia is considered kind of its own thing, but for all intents and purposes, sure. Virginia DMV area will, will round it up, but Chris Cole coming to town, Gerard, what, what category is he? Is he a, uh, wild card bitches. Surely you don't think maybe he is a uh, closer? A always BBC closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. I don't really have a traction one, but we'll just do the honey because you get stuck to honey, I guess. Bitch better have my honey. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, I would not put him as a closer. I didn't know where to go from there. Uh, I, I've never gotten the sense that USC was top two for him. And I think he really likes recruiting. That's, that's one thing that, uh, you should listen to our podcast. He really likes recruiting and likes the attention. And I don't believe he's going to shut it down. Uh, like he previously implied. So I think there could be some other visits um, that follow the USC trip. I, we'll see. We'll see. I, I really don't feel like I have a, a great read on Chris Cole. I've never spoken to Chris Cole. I think you spoke to him after he took his unofficial visit during the summer. Or maybe it was maybe it was JP. Uh, I think JP. Actually, JP is the one who got that. He got that scoop on that visit. Yeah, he, he just spoke uh, to him uh, not that long ago, like maybe three, four weeks ago. And – yeah, you know, I, I know USC at this point, you know, he's one of those guys that's probably top of the board um, because I've missed out some guys. But I don't know. I, I think there's probably another Miami visit in there somewhere, uh, an unofficial quote unquote. UA, like you said, uh, George is the projected leader. And so you would feel like eh, USC's probably not going to win out with Georgia head to head. I just don't know if he's a take for Georgia at this point. You know, that's that's going to be a big thing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was told in the beginning of the week, maybe he visits USC. And so <laughs> seeing how his recruitment has kind of been like a little bit all over the place and he's visited a lot of schools and, you know, every visit is amazing and it's great. And I think everybody comes away feeling like they have a chance with him. Uh, I was kind of wondering if that visit would happen or if something came up. And so I, I'll, I'll check in again. I know that Brian don't did have a conversation with him this week. And as of, I think it was Tuesday, he was going to still officially visit USC. So kind of 
some I don't know is I don't know what the 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 maybe I don't know where that comes in, but it sort of reinforces my own vibe in his recruitment. Uh, but you know, Don had talked to him, and Don says that he's still planning on taking his official visit, which again is interesting because you have that conversation between Elijah Gordon, the safety from Mitch Cucamonga, and Dante Williams. And Dante basically saying, yeah, we're not doing official visits right now, which, again, it's one of two things there. It's either they're really not doing official visits right now and the Chris Cole visit won't happen, or it's just a slow play and they're not ready to have other guys take official visits until later in the year and they kind of figure out their board a little more. Granted, at the safety position, I don't really know where you're going from there unless you're looking more at like linebacker, outside linebacker for Elijah Gordon. I know that has come up in conversations uh, with with other sources, but as a safety, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, USC's kind of gone through that. Um, I don't know if there's any other guys that maybe you bring in later in the year. I do think, and Lincoln Riley actually touched on this, there's some confidence that they're going to have a great year. And in November, they're going to be able to get guys on campus and they're going to be able to maybe flip some commits. So, you know, that's certainly an optimistic view. And we don't know at this point in time how realistic that will be with NIL and, you know, some other things that are involved with the recruiting process. We're still in the infancy of that. You know, last year we we note guys like Francis Maragoa, who stayed solid and didn't budge on their commitments, even though Miami was awful and there was a lot of thought that, okay, you know, he's going to start looking around again, never happened. And then you have other instances that, you know, it did happen. So yeah, we're still kind of getting the feel for how realistic and, and, and how expansive will flip season be. There's going to be guys that decommit, you know, decommit season is a thing and it was a thing last year. So, you know, it's just, the question is how many guys that you were already involved with get into that pool of talent and how many guys can you somehow get yourself involved with that maybe didn't take official visits during the season and you can actually bring them in for official visits. I should say official visits during the summer, guys that have not been to campus yet officially, and then you still have that official visit that you can bring them in. You can bring them in unofficially as well, uh, guys that have already taken the official visit. So, you know, that's, Easier to do these days, uh, certainly with NIL. It seems like kids are being able to travel a little more freely. Uh, but there are always those guys that maybe you felt like you couldn't get in on, you didn't have a chance at. And once they decommit, it just takes a DM or a phone call. And it's like, oh, well, this kid actually does have interest in us. And then you get someone that's you know basically added to the target list that right now we sit here and we don't even think is a potential option. I love those moments of the fall recruiting. Just someone's going to pop up. Someone's going to be there. Someone's going to turn it on for somebody and they're going to they're going to come be interested in USC and that all depends on the wins and losses, what USC's up to. So yeah, I I'm looking forward to that. This is the this is the final recruiting season, Gerard. As I say, there's kind of two seasons. There's that spring, summer, and then there's the fall. So things are going to get interesting as we move through this year. Gerard, I think it's time we take our break for this show. When we come back, we're going to get some of your thoughts on the San Jose State 
San Jose State game. Some Friday nights, little quick things we're looking forward to seeing against Nevada. And then I got a couple listener questions to get at you. So we'll be right back after this break. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gerard, I'm on the lookout for that cease and desist letter. I'm on the lookout for it. It might be coming. It might be coming. <laughs> How is your but, but like, but like I said, it's just simply. That wasn't your best one. That wasn't your best one. You did some really I, good ones. That wasn't your best. Yeah, one. it was a little off key there. I don't know what happened. I just, uh, I just took a drink of water and uh, the saliva was not lined up properly on my lips to be able to get that one out. But nevertheless, we are back. Let's go. Uh, Gerard, uh, plenty of people have heard my thoughts on San Jose state and the results of USC's 56 to 28 victory, whether that was on tunnel vision Sunday night. Thanks for everyone tuning in. That was a very popular show to podcasts with a shotgun on helium boys on Monday. So a lot of people have heard my thoughts, but not a lot of people have heard your thoughts. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did I see you? You usually tweet during the game. I didn't see you tweeting during the game. Did, am I mistaken? Yeah, I did not tweet. I was kind of busy with just logging information during the game, doing play-by-play. Like, I take notes of, like, every snap. And, I'm, you know, USC so fast. <laughs> Offensively, right. you're like, uh, no, 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 uh, who's got – oh, shit, now we got another snap. Uh, you know, so um, – and, and also it was the first game, and, you know – it's I'm just like, saying you usually you you drop really good uh, nuggets on the yeah, on the social and there, I here and there yeah yeah I it, you know I mean getting into this you know we're talking about San Jose State game and really we want to focus more on the recruiting angle we don't need to rehash the game itself everybody's already heard a million different takes on I know the but game. we'll get your thoughts throughout the recruiting angle you you get <laughs> this is what I'm saying it's one of those things where Listen, the amount of rotation, it reminded you of a scrimmage, a scrimmage that we could actually watch because we don't get to see the scrimmages now. At USC, there was a lot of guys playing, and you know that is going to affect 
playbook. It's going to affect certain things. And so you have to always keep that in mind and not make too many judgment calls on what the rest of the season is going to look like just based on this game. So from that standpoint, I didn't want to get ahead of myself and start tweeting these uh, these grand sweeping generalizations of what I was seeing based just on you know the first half or even just the first game. I think if there would have been a little more focus on personnel and they were used in certain situations differently, I might have felt differently myself. But yeah, it 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 was the there was a lot of stuff being thrown against the wall on that game. I feel like uh, from USC and they felt like. They could get away with it against San Jose State, probably more than maybe they even did, because I think San Jose State took advantage of some of those mistakes and some of the rotations a bit, uh, which is a good thing, you know, because um, it doesn't it definitely prepares them a bit more. Uh, it shows the kind of consequences of not being prepared and being ready to go on game day for the younger players and for the guys that were, you know, second team, third team that were getting some of those reps. So um, it's one of those things that going forward, you know, we'll see. Uh, the connection between the, maybe the mistakes or maybe the mishaps you see in game one with game two, and you start to build a little bit more of a picture of it. But again, I had takeaways to do, man. I was strapped with that. And that's like a 2,700 word uh, feature that we do mm-hmm. long form. And so uh, I was kind of immersed in trying to make sure that I had some interesting things to say. And I wasn't just regurgitating the sort of, um, you know, layman, Joe Trojan, you know, run the ball more sort of uh, for the mm-hmm. sort of hot takes that you get, you know, on the pair style. Hot takes, hot takes, hot cakes. Well, <laughs> just from a recruiting <laughs> angle standpoint, a ton of freshmen played in this one. So obviously, Zachariah Branch, the star of this, and we'll have our own little talk about him. Just get your thoughts on Zachariah Branch. What was there any other freshman that you thought? impressed outside of that or caught your eye this being obviously a recruiting a recruiting podcast and we we do focus on the freshmen a lot more because there were some guys that definitely flashed out there and there was obviously certain names in the stands that were very interested in seeing how certain players got used in this first one absolutely i mean this is where the rubber meets the road this is why uh we did the recruiting angle pieces and and definitely let uh, us know if you know those are a big deal and you want to see those continue I, I feel like for a game like this not super important not mm-hmm. enough big names in the stands with scholarship offers that you know this game is necessarily affecting them it's not a nationally televised game it's tucked away in the Pac-12 so we know all 17 of us watched it um, so yeah from that standpoint you know the recruiting angle it, it felt like it was a little less necessary but nevertheless we know the uh, the hardcore fans are listening right now and they are uh, dialed into this and they understand that freshman playing and getting early playing time does impact other recruits uh, the guys that are in the stands the guys that are on the sidelines they want to know that they can come in and they can play right away that's a huge factor in their recruitments and you know, talking the talk about, yeah, we play freshmen and walking the walk and having those guys out there first game of the season is, is definitely two different things. And USC has is, is done a good job the past two years of getting their freshmen and their newcomers in the game and playing early. And I think, you know, there's a handful of guys that, that definitely made contributions and look good. Obviously, Zach Branch is the guy that's going to steal the headlines. But I was watching for Braylon Shelby, our guy. 
the uh, 6'4", 250-pound rush end from Friendship, Texas, a guy that we saw a lot on film, saw some very unique attributes from him, and I saw those attributes in one particular play where he was in near the goal line, and uh, San Jose State decides to throw the ball, and he makes a really good read on the run because they're down on the goal line, so you've, you've got to pinch You've got to sort of, you know, make sure that edge is tight uh, to potentially make the tackle on the backside of the play. But it ends up being a pass. He reads it. He checks it and he goes into the flat, which I think it's a tight end that is actually motioning to that side, if I recall off the top of my head. So he has to make that adjustment with this off to player on the move, which in a lot of situations, he's going to have a step on you initially. So you've got to make up a little ground. And he did an excellent job in coverage. He got his hips turned he got to running he did a good he didn't hold he didn't grab him he's got those long arms so he's probably feeling pretty good said you know you know I, I i can give up a step and probably still make a play on this ball but he was right there on that play true freshman at the goal line and that's what we're talking about with braylon shelby you know he's got the size he's going to have more strength as he develops physically but the ability to play off the line of scrimmage for him and to have the awareness in the intangibles, he kind of showed that on that play, which was just a nothing play on the stat sheet. But I really, really liked what I saw from him on that play. And we've seen him now physically up close. We know those things that we projected on film and that the way he looked with long arms and the way he played. Now you kind of put it all together and go, yeah, he, he is him. He is him, to, to quote Chris in, in the war room. Um that guy scares away guys like Jalen Harvey. I'll be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Jalen Harvey's probably there on the side and he's looking, he's going, uh, coach. You're saying it backfired. You're saying it backfired. It, it, it could to some extent. I, I don't know if Jalen Harvey is that guy. I, I don't know if there's going to be too many other players that you can recruit that can, that can, that are that big that have those physical attributes and then have that awareness, you know, that, that ability to kind of be that force multiplier, which I often reference that with Eric Gentry, just because of his length and his awareness and his instinct, he can play a space and play more than one player at a time. And that's kind of what Braylon Shelby gives you, but Braylon Shelby is even more physically impressive. So yeah, he is a, a good looking player. And you know, with you got Jalen Harvey on the sideline, you want to see something from your pass rush. You know, you want to see true freshmen, you want to see rotation, um, it's just one of those things that, you know, it, you never know how it's going to necessarily play in the mind of a recruit. But I thought USC's pass rush was really good. It was mm-hmm. uh, at least getting up field. Um, they were getting off blocks. They were they were being in the backfield. They were getting in the backfield. The problem was it was not cohesive. The pass rush was kind of all over the place. It wasn't very disciplined. They made their passing lanes into huge running lanes for the quarterback. And they even got gashed a little bit in the running game uh, here and there because of that. And guys getting swept up in their pass rush technique and not having enough awareness for down and distance and for their run fits, even on a, on a down where it's like a first down. You can't just assume they're going to pass the ball on first down and 10. You, you have to be able to play the run as well. And, you know, something that I mentioned last winter, USC was recruiting um, a couple different players, and I can't remember the name of the defensive end edge rusher that ended up going to Michigan. He was out of Coastal Carolina, and we're watching film, and USC had offered him a scholarship. So watching Jamil Muhammad uh, as opposed to – it was Josiah Stewart. Josiah Stewart was the other edge rusher that was coming out of Coastal Carolina who – 
was ranked higher than Jamil Muhammad. And the thing that I saw about Stewart was that sometimes he just got too immersed into his pass rush move and he kind of rushed the passer head down and I could see where he was getting taken out of plays. The thing that I liked about Jamil Muhammad and why I felt he was underrated and maybe should have been rated ahead of Josiah Stewart was because he had so much awareness in rushing the passer and just playing off the edge. And maybe some of that has to do with the fact that he played quarterback. Again, we're kind of going into that theme of playing both sides of the ball and that giving you a little more awareness, a little bit more peripheral uh, understanding of the game and sort of the bigger picture. But with USC, they were lacking that, especially in that first half where they were just getting upfield like crazy, so much so that San Jose State makes the adjustment and they start throwing screen passes, which is the ultimate red flag that your defense is playing undisciplined up front. You know, when you've got that type of pass rush uh, and you're just getting upfield and you're not really playing with any kind of awareness, the other team's going to begin to start throwing, uh, you know, tra- they're going to start running traps on you. They're going to start throwing screen passes and they're just going to welcome you upfield and get right on behind you. And so that was an issue that I saw immediately with the pass rush. So good news, these guys are getting off blocks, which we haven't seen a whole lot of in the past with USC defensive lines. We've seen guys sort of occupying blocks too much. Bear Alexander, Keon uh, Bars. Uh, Anthony Lucas, these guys are all getting off their blocks. It really wasn't until you bring in Jamil Muhammad, shockingly, and uh, Eric Gentry, where you see a little more awareness for what's going on at the line of scrimmage. And these guys starting to make those plays and starting to, whether if they're initially in on the play and they're causing pressure, they're able to at least clean up the play to some extent. You see a lot of this with Jamil Muhammad. There's a few plays he didn't make but he's trying to run down the quarterback because he's the only one that has his head on the swivel to say, oh, yeah, I can't just try to get 10 yards upfield and just run at the quarterback. I have to have a little bit of awareness for my containment. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think it's very interesting when you've got a guy like Jamin Harvey and he's watching um, the the line of scrimmage, he's watching the the, the edge players and sort of what he could bring to the table. Um, I think with USC, again, Good news is you've got much better athletes playing in the front seven. Bad news is not seeing enough discipline there, seeing a lot of movement, seeing just a lot of areas where teams can exploit that. And believe me, they will exploit that. You start to get better teams that you're playing against that will continue to try to spread you out. They're going to use a lot of different plays to try to attack those gaps. So USC's got to tighten up there for sure. Um, It's got to be done with coaching. It's got to be done with just, you know, I don't know if there's drills or whatever, but just, hey, guys, listen, you know, it's great that we're aggressive and we're disrupting, but not every down is going to be a third and long. Granted, they even got uh, taken advantage on third and that 22, and I'm not going to go rehash that. Everybody and their brother has (laughs) talked about that ad nauseum. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, uh, kind of an issue. I I thought, you know, something else also interesting, and and we've seen this story developing now over the past couple years, but no Corey Foreman. uh, He didn't really play a major factor in the game. He did play, I think, late, but, you know, kind of a non-factor, not really in the rotation very much. He has been injured a little bit recently. Uh, We've talked about him. You know, he's down to 235, and he's playing five technique, which is kind of an oxymoron. Um, You probably want him to be back up to his 265, 270. And um, that raises the question – of, uh, you know, the player development angle and and whether USC likes it or not, whether it's fair or not from a player development angle, you know, that is potentially going to affect them with some other players. And uh, Corey Foreman is a a winner circle guy and uh, Aiden Breland is a winner circle guy. 
And so you can read where there will be a connection there. Damani Jackson is a winner's circle guy as well, to some extent. And so how these players are used, how they're developed, and you know how they're able to contribute at USC, the people that are in the ears of these kids and, and these recruits, and they're around these guys, and it, you know maybe that's really all they really know about football is what they hear when they're with their trainers and they're and they're with these guys in the off season and, and weight training and everything. If they have an ill opinion of how other players that have come through that system have been developed, it's going to reflect kind of negatively going forward. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, that's a note that I made. You know, just the less we see of Corey Foreman for whatever reason, probably not going to help them. Uh, with a guy like Aiden Breland, I, I do think that there are connections there. Uh, there ended up being, and I counted initially nine freshmen who ended up on the stat sheet. There were, you know, a handful, a handful more players that ended up uh, playing, participating. Guys like Christian Pierce, who were on uh, the kickoff team. Uh, I don't think he was out there for the first kickoff, but I think he was out there for subsequent kickoffs. And um, some other guys, you know, that got uh, some some good run. Um, certainly, Alani Noah, I thought showed extremely well. Uh, starting, you know, as a, as a guard, he got out there in one of those touchdown runs on a pole and looked really good. And so, you know, I, I think that's fantastic seeing those three-star guys and, and coaching them up and getting the start from day one. Um, I think that offensive line, just in general, from a take standpoint, run oriented, kicking Jonah Monheim out there, who he, he kind of, he, he had a, he had a good game and then he had some not so good moments in, in, in a good game too. I think, um, you know, we, all, we often talked about with Jonah Monheim, is he playing left tackle speak to his development as a player and how good he is that you're able to use him like that a la Elijah Vera Tucker? Or is it more of an omission of guilt that the offensive line as a whole is not playing that great and nobody who was slated to actually take that job let's say a Mason Murphy or somebody else that's been playing off to tackle hasn't been able to step up and secure that job. You know, that, that, that remains to be seen, but I do feel like this is a run first offensive line and, and they didn't need to do it in this game. You know, they didn't need to pound the run, but we'd said, you know, often last year, first probably five, six, seven games of the season, maybe USC needs to run the ball more. They need to run the ball more. Now, the issue with that is you're taking the ball perhaps out of the hands of your best player, Caleb Williams. So there's a bit of a it's, – it's not, it's not uh, that, that, you know, Lincoln Riley and, and Josh Henson, they have to figure out, you know, what is going to be uh, the best thing for the team overall. You know, is it, is it get the ball in Caleb's hands, let him create, let him do his thing. That is ultimately going to take the offense further. I think if you can limit turnovers, it's still probably the best bet. Excuse me. Bless you. There's no mute button, obviously, on your mic. Um, But on the other hand, you know, just overall, like I said, offensive line in terms of pass protection kind of gives you the vibe right now that it's a little more of a run-oriented, mauling offensive line. And I think with Lonnie Noah playing in there and uh, Jonah Monaheim at left tackle, that's kind of sort of, I guess, from a stylistic standpoint – uh, at least in the first game, kind of the vibe that I got. Uh, lastly, Quentin Joyner, freshman running back, looked great again. There's something about him. Uh, he has no handles, which I know in basketball is is, is, a, is a negative thing to say, but in football it's to say that you can't get a hold of this kid. He's He's got mm-hmm. uh, this uh, sort of yeah, roundness about him. Um, Lindo White sort of had it. A lot of people think back in the day Lindo White just ran people over, but Lindo White was just difficult to tackle because he was a lot of muscle. 
and he never let you square up on him very often. You know, even though he could run at 250, 260, I think at one time he admitted he was 270 pounds in the Rose Bowl uh, game against Michigan. He he really didn't give you a great angle on him to just square him up. And, uh, you know, obviously Quentin Joyner is not that big, but he kind of reminds me of that as a runner. He is able to spin and, and it's just very slippery and he doesn't go down for the first guy. And so uh, he's he's a guy that, you know, you, you're going to want to see on the field, I think, even more. Um, they've got a nice running back uh, stable there with with uh, some some different nuance uh, to this group than last year, because you interject Marshawn Lloyd, who I think is a very good physical runner. He had the least amount of yardage per carry at 4.7, whereas uh, Austin Jones had a crazy nine yards a carry. Uh, but I see some value in getting Marshawn uh, Lloyd said Lynch, Marshawn Lloyd, uh, the football. The problem is he might need to get lathered up. He might be one of those guys that really needs consecutive carries. And again, going back to last year, that's something that USC, uh, for the most part, kind of reluctant to do. There was a few games there where they did it. I want to say Washington State was one of those games later in the season where they actually just started just started run the ball, like give the ball to the running back three times in a row. You, you, you know, you want to save your running backs just like you want to save Caleb Williams from running the ball and not taking any hits early in the season. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, listen, you know, Travis Stye still goes down at the at the end of the year uh, despite doing that. You know, guys can just go down. I, I, I understand kind of trying to keep the wear and tear off of them. But if you've got multiple guys, let them cook. Like, let somebody cook. Like, hey, this game is going to be the game where you've got the hot hand. We recognize it. We're going to give you the ball three, four times in a row and see what happens. Oh, hey, look it. You got no gain on one down. Second down and 10. Okay, cool. Go run it again. It's okay. You can do it. You might get nine yards. You, you know, that's, I, I think, you know, and, and the thing that I like what I about uh, both Lloyd, but, you know, in particular, Joyner is that with that slipperiness and that ability to get away from contact, initial contact, there's not a lot of negative plays there with the run game. And that's a great thing. You know, when you've got a guy that's got great lateral movement or he's physical enough to break a tackle, it keeps you on schedule offensively. And that's a huge thing with college football offenses. When you start getting negative plays and you start getting off schedule and you've got, you know, second and 19 or second and 17, and then it puts you in like a third and 11. It, third it and 22. Yeah, third and 22. <laughs> well, that was flip side of the field that uh, worked against them. But you do have uh, – it, it, it puts a lot of stress on your offense. It puts a lot of stress uh, on your playmakers to go make a play. And you tend to get more turnovers when you're in those situations. So staying on schedule and staying within, you know, a, a third and four and a third and five type of situation, I mean, that's just, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, we could do anything. You know, we could throw the ball. We could have Caleb, you know, do a read option. Thought it was interesting seeing the wrinkle of the kind of that triple option that they were using with that uh, that that trailing flanker on the outside, where you know Caleb kind of threw it through the ball at the last minute. Which you know, there was a few times where he almost took some hits because of that. Um, but nevertheless, there's so many things you can do, which is you know a little different than when you're in third eleven, third and twelve. You're, you're usually probably going to have to pass the ball. So um, I do like USC running the ball still, and I, I think this is an offense that can absolutely decide if they want to uh, really focus on the run, just run it down people's throats. I don't know that we're going to see that, but uh, it does seem like they still have that capability. And with a guy like Marshawn Lloyd, who is a little bigger and a little more physical, um, they may punish 
opposing defenses more at the end of games with that style. Gerard, any love? You kind of going back to the the front real quick before we get into Zachariah Branch. Any love for Elijah Hughes, who came in there, had some impact. You know, didn't play a ton of snaps, but was disruptive from the start. And you know, three star guy out of the DMV. Looks like he's embracing the inner Bubba because he was playing some interior line, and he seems like he's uh, added to his body since he arrived kind of in that late summer. So Elijah Hughes looking like a steal for Sean Nua and Lincoln Riley. Again, another three-star guy that, um, you know, it's 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 really nice to see those players look in a college Division One game like they did on film in high school. You know, that's mm-hmm. the thing. It's like Elijah Lonnie Noah going out there and, and looking like a mauler. And you're like, okay, I know it's San Jose State and it's not Notre Dame. It's not Oregon. But San Jose State's got some guys, too. I mean, they're they're not a bad football team. They're not a bad football program. And these guys are going to get some grown men and they're still having the way. And so I absolutely agree. Elijah Hughes was a guy that I did mention in the takeaways piece as being someone who, I mean, out of the group probably earned maybe the most increased in reps. Um, He was very disruptive and he didn't look out of control. I mean, he looked like a guy that uh, understood that, you know, there's, there's situations where you can kind of, go crazy with your hair on fire and try to get after the pass rusher. But, you know, you do have to be under control and um, yeah, a little, a little bigger, you know, put on a little bit of weight and playing in the interior um, as opposed to, you know, some other guys that have lost weight to play on the edge, uh, which we'll see if that benefits them down the line. But um, Elijah Hughes, an, another three-star stubbing up and looking good. And, and from a recruit perspective, even from a fan perspective, you know, that's great player development. You know, you can get the five-star guys to go out there and play like five stars. That's great. That's almost necessary. It's almost, you know, you put pressure on yourself when you go out there and you recruit a five-star a guy like Corey Foreman, a guy like Damani Jackson, a guy like Imam Marshall. You have to have those guys play at that level or people are going to say, you know, you're not developing guys. You've got bust, et cetera. When you're winning, here's the thing. When you're winning a bunch of games, that's less of a talking point. There's less negative recruitment that schools can use against you because you are winning those games. And so it becomes uh, the, the, the onus falls more on those players in those instances, you know, because there were guys like Thomas Herring, uh, Whitney Lewis. There were some guys uh, during the PKR era that were five-star guys that did not pan out, but you know, the talking, the narrative from that, because you're still winning games and you're still going to the national championship becomes, well, that guy was just a bust. You know, for whatever reason, that guy was just a bust. The problem because becomes when you have players that are not performing to the level that everybody expected out of high school um, and you're not winning games and you're not playing well, whether it be defensively or what have you, then it becomes, well, listen, you know, they're not developing their guys. That's an issue. I mean, you've got a guy like that, Corey Foreman sitting there. And their defense isn't playing really well. If Corey Foreman was playing better, you know, the defense we'd be playing, et cetera. That, I, and again, I'm not, this is not like my opinion. I just understand how it works. I understand the conversations that ha- that, that happen in these group texts and recruiting circles and how it goes and, and how it kind of starts to work against you. So that's one of those things where, um, you know, I mean, another example here is is the Ruley Brown talk now. You know, you've got uh, Zach Branch, who made a huge impact. 
kind of doing what we thought Willie Brown might have done last season, which he didn't. He kind of was used here and there. He was a nice wrinkle here and there. But I don't to be think- fair, he got hurt. He hurt his ankle and he couldn't really do much in the middle of the year. He still scored six touchdowns. So I wonder what it would look like if he hadn't, you know, hurt his ankle and he couldn't. But there practice. was not a single game last season where people were talking about really Brown the way they're talking about Zach Brown today. Well, maybe when he hit that Heisman pose at the beginning of the year, that maybe is the closest. But no, obviously, yes. <laughs> but it, yes, it, obviously it, didn't do anything as what Zach Bra- or Zach Zachariah did in uh, this and weekend. that and that has from a recruiting angle perspective an impact because you know that Relique Brown his recruiting handlers are also involved with Jordan Davison at Modern Day, the five star running back who is a part of the 2025 class. So again, you know this is recruiting. This is the sort of um, days of our lives, drama and connections and issues and obstacles that you deal with recruiting. It's not the NFL draft. It's not one of those things you just go out there and go, yeah, you know, best players doesn't matter. This, that, that other, this guy got cut and it just doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. And there's uh, word of mouth and there's people that are watching how guys play and they get disgruntled. And again, it's not, you know, always the fault of the coaching staff. If a a five-star guy doesn't turn out to be a five-star guy. Yeah. There was an evaluation that kind of went wrong, but you know, that's, that's really easy to, to sort of armchair quarterback. You know, we go back and talk about the Whitney Lewis situation and you know how people talk about, Oh, he was a bust and blah, blah, blah. And this didn't happen. This didn't happen. You know, I mean, there were things from a personal standpoint that were derailing Whitney Lewis's career before he even got on campus at USC. And it wasn't really just all on USC. There was a lot of off-field stuff that really, I mean, it caused him not to be able to be that guy at USC. We did see, you know, flashes of him potentially being the five-star player that he was rated as coming out of St. Bonaventure where he had 1,000 yards, receiving in 1,000 yards, rushing, uh, coming away from uh, the season before where Lorenzo Booker was like the player of the year at St. Bonaventure. Is that a bad evaluation? from Pete Carroll and his staff going after Whitney Lewis and bringing him in? Hell no. You, you recruit him every day, all day. And, and yeah, there's some betting that may have needed to go on further with him off the field and everything, but it, it wasn't behavioral. It, it wasn't any of these things that were just like, you know, I, I think you thought would be what it ended up evolving into that, that, that kept him from being that great player on the field. And, and that happens in a lot of situations. So it's very easy to, to say, well, you know, uh, it was an evaluation issue and he wasn't really a five-star, so on and so forth. Because, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You cannot recruit that player knowing what you know. And during the recruitment, you know, everybody locally is going to say, but what are you doing? You're missing out on this guy. He's such a great player locally. You know, you're not a good recruiter. And it's just like, it's not that you're not a good recruiter. It's that you've evaluated and you've seen there's some red flags there. you got to go in another direction. And then nobody comes back because you're probably not even at that school anymore as a position coach. But nobody comes back to say, dang, that was a great read. You didn't recruit that five-star guy. You know, you didn't. Re- you know, D- Daryl Scott is a great example of a, of a player that was a running back coming out of Moore Park High School. He transferred to California from Florida. He was the cast of pajamas. He was six foot, 210, best running back in the country. And USC recruited him. 
but just didn't at the end of the day kind of really push for him that hard. You know, it was like, eh, we like him, but just not as much as everybody else. And at that time, it was like, oh, man, USC lost a guy. Like, wow, man, USC actually, they, they finally lost a guy. They finally lost a five-star guy. Now he's originally from Florida, so he wasn't like a, a, a Southern California native, but they lost a guy. And I think he ended up going to Colorado or something. But, you know, if you kind of look back at that situation, it's like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that big of a mess, you know, and they had evaluated some things to figure that out. So, yeah, it's one of those things that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's so many moving parts to all of this. Um, but I do think with the relief Brown thing that it's going to be a talking point, certainly. And the whole thing with him now, he's going to redshirt evidently, you know, we'll see what happens, but certainly I think, um, a lot of people are, are, are reading this as another Gary Bryant situation. And I can understand that. I think that's a fair enough, uh, call to be made. And, um, you know, hopefully, they can figure out a way to get him on the field uh, with Zach Branch and, and use both of them and, and get them both uh, playing time and catches. But there is only one football, and you got to go with the guys that you're confident in. And, and certainly they had confidence in Zach Branch and that even though he was a freshman, he was going to line up in the right place. And when he got the football, he was going to catch the football and he was going to make a play for him. And he showed that, and he did that. So that is what it is. And and um, that was uh, the right call, obviously, because – uh, like I said before, we didn't necessarily see that from Relique Brown last year for whatever reason. And so it's the same quarterback. It's the same offensive coordinator, same head coach. So, you know, that sort of is what it is. But I understand how that will uh, manifest itself into sort of a, a negative recruiting narrative, um, which I think, truth be told, the way USC is rolling off offensively and as long as they get some of these guys into the NFL and they do well in the NFL – it is not going to matter. It's not going to matter. It's just like back in the days when guys didn't work out in the Pete Carroll era. If you're winning and you're getting guys in the draft and the onus becomes on the players, it's like, Hey, all these other guys are getting drafted. And it seems like the guys that they're actually playing over you are doing a pretty good job because they're winning national championships. So, uh, but when you don't win those games and, you know, you have issues and, and you lose against Tulane and what have you, then it, 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 there's more traction to that. And that's going to go further uh, on the recruiting trail. So, you know, I think that's um, definitely something that you take away uh, from the first game. And we see going forward um, if, uh, if you know, if, if Raleigh is used and uh, if he's used, you know, how much uh, – uh, of impact can he make, you know, because, because, you know, the expectation I think was that he would make uh, more of an impact than he did last season. Gerard, before we move on, did you want to comment on sort of the uh, Zachariah Branch, Reggie Bush comparisons that have been thrown out there since his debut on Saturday, scoring two touchdowns, you know, a big, what, 92, 96 yard kickoff return, 232 all-purpose yards, one of the best, you know, debuts for a freshman for a skilled player. I kind of broke down a list of all like the top guys that have had and their freshman debuts compared to uh, Zachary Branch, and it's up there. But you know, I've seen obviously Tyreek Hill is a name that get thrown thrown out for that gets thrown out for Zachariah, and I've seen Tavon Austin was thrown out by Daniel Jeremiah of NFL uh, NFL Network. But you know the. Reggie Bush one is one that's come up, you know, quite frequently. And I was just wondering what 
comp you have? Do you think that's a fair, a fair comparison? Is it too big to make? Obviously, you never. It's it's hard to live up to that comparison. So I, I just want to get your thoughts on that. It's a difficult comparison because Zachariah Branch is a wide receiver, and so the thing about Reggie being a running back. It was so easy to feed him the ball in so many different ways, but the easiest way offensively was just to hand the ball off to him. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to make more of an impact from that standpoint uh, than you can as a wide receiver. Now, that's not to say that Zachariah Branch can't still make a huge impact on the offense, but I think with Reggie was a little bit more of a gravitational point for the offense, uh, whereas I think Zachariah Branch – it's just going to be that player that at any time with the ball in his hand uh, can make something happen and maybe turn a game. I think from an impact standpoint, there is some comparison there. Um, certainly, I think just stylistically and just, again, in terms of position, a little bit of apples and oranges just based on you know how you're able to get the ball in their hands and, and how really other teams can try to take away uh, Zach Branch as opposed to Reggie Bush. Because you could put you know, nine guys at the line of scrimmage to try to take away Reggie Bush. And you just line Reggie Bush up in the slot. Okay. There goes the band Uh, Reggie Bush um, from a running back standpoint, if you want to try to spread out, you know, the defense uh, with other players and just hand him off the ball or screen passes, or or there's so many different ways you could get him the ball Uh, with Zach. It's going to be a bit more, okay, we got to set up ways to get him the ball, maybe out of the backfield, but it's still going to be with the passing game. So I think other teams are going to be able to maybe do some things. It's going to be dependent on the other players around him and other guys being able to step up and show that uh, they can be uh, game breakers as well. But nobody wants to give up touchdowns. So that's always the most immediate threat for the defensive coordinator is we got to stop the guy that's going to score against us. Right? There, there's a guy like, you know, maybe they look at Dorian Singer and they say, OK, we can let Dorian Singer get you know 11 catches for 100 and something yards. But as long as he's not just scoring these, you know, touchdowns in, in, a, in a in a 40 second drive <laughs> you know that that's the kind of stuff that they really really want to avoid because that's going to cost you your job so there's going to be you know some adjustment uh, to him but a lot of people really just don't know how USC is going to use him and you're going to have to get later in the year before they can really scheme against him with uh with any kind of success and because USC is doing such a great job of moving him around and they move around all their players I mean that is uh, again, going towards selling this offense, a big sales job, talking to Philip Bell. Great example. Philip Bell, uh, the uh, wide receiver at a Mission Viejo, he was at the game. And, and again, talking about him kind of being a Trojan fan. He's watched USC for a long time. And so he knows USC, um, you know, beyond just the Clay Helton era. And the people around him know USC beyond that. He sees where he can play inside and outside. And it really it limits the defense's ability to scheme, you know, where you can say, okay, this guy's an outside receiver. Uh, These are his tendencies. These are the formations to look at. Obviously down in distance becomes a factor into what you're looking at, what kind of route he may run. These are the strongest routes that he has. These are the most yards he has on these particular uh, uh, routes. So this is how we're going to bracket him. This is how we're going to double team him. This is how we're going to nullify his contributions to the offense. But when you have that player have the ability to play not just at, at split, but then go in and play uh, slot, 
motion him. Now you got him coming out of the backfield, and you're and you're trying to get your keys right. It's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. is the linebacker caught him? Do we, the linebacker is going to try to take him out of the backfield on a swing pass? Are you kidding me? That's not – we can't do that. We got to make some type of adjustment. And all that stuff, seeing that type of player at different depths lined up at different points of the field, oh, it sucks, man, as a defensive guy. And a guy that's quick like that in space, yeah, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So, I mean, from that standpoint of – forcing the defense to really have to recognize and how it can open up other things for other players. I definitely see the comparison in with a guy like Reggie Bush. However, I, I just think, you know, in terms of production and yards and everything, you can't expect that same thing just because Reggie being a running back. I mean, literally you could just hand the ball off to him, hand the ball off to him and he was going to get yards to you. It was very easy production from that standpoint where you got to do a little more, get that ball in the air. Things got to work a little better. You know, your offensive line's got to block a little better uh, to get him the ball downfield. If you're getting the ball behind the line of scrimmage, well, you might be able to take that away a little more, play, play some press, um, do some things. Uh, you know, Caleb Williams has got to be on. Yeah, there's, there's just some more that has to go on there with the receiver getting the ball um, than just handing the ball off to a running back. I think the Tavon Austin, in terms of stylistically, there's some comparisons there. You kind of can see that. You know, Tavon was very smooth. I don't think that any of these comparisons outside Reggie, however, the thing that people miss about Zachariah Branch is how strong he is. He's strong. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. he is, he's, is, he's actually, a very, he's an ant. He is. He, <laughs> okay, let's go back. There's ants in the studio. Zachariah Branch is built like an ant. He's got way more strength than people would realize looking at him. And so not only can he make those moves, not only is he quick, not only is he fast, not only does he have good awareness in the open field. And you saw that on the kick return where he kind of knew where the guy was trying to get an angle on him from the side and just kind of moved away from it. Um, he's strong. So you kind of get a little bit of an arm tackle on a guy like that. And maybe some of those guys go down, but like a maybe more like a Percy Harvin, who was a lot stronger than people realized, he can break that tackle. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, you can't, you got to actually, you got to wrap this guy. And that's even harder to do because you got to catch him and then you got to break down and then you got to, re you really got to swarm a guy like that. And that's really hard to do when USC has so many other weapons. So yeah, man, it, it, he's a guy and it's going to be uh, really difficult for defenses um, to be able to take him out of the game and then also try to limit some of the other guys that can be, you know, uh, guys that are that are real threats. You know, I mean, I, I liked what I saw from Brennan Rice on that uh, that little screen, kind of that little bubble screen pass where, you know, he just he just ran with authority straight up the field. You saw his speed. I mean, Brennan Rice ran one of the fastest GPS times uh, during the offseason. Um the strength and conditioning coach put that out there and we were looking at all these times like, Oh wow. You know I mean? He was, it was faster than Zachariah branch. Now, you know, that, that probably came with some caveats and what have you. We don't necessarily know the whole setup, but of that pod of players, you had Brendan Rice, you had Zachariah branch. I think you had Damani Jackson was, was the, was the fastest. Maybe, maybe Damani was the fastest and Brendan Rice was the second fastest, but Brendan Rice was way up there for a guy who's probably pushing what 215 pounds at this point, about mm -hmm. six, two, six, three. That guy's got a lot of physical ability, man. If he can catch the ball and be consistent from that standpoint, block well, I mean, he's a guy that can be a bit of a grain breaker for, for USC. And you've got Relique Brown there. I mean, there's another guy. Like, 
you just wonder, man, you, if you, if you, if the defense wants to play one side of the field because Zach is over there and they know there could be a tunnel screen, some type of RPO where they're going to try to get him the ball in space, they're going to overcompensate for that. And you could easily have just Raleigh Brown in, in the backfield, put them as split backs and then try to figure out how the defense is going to be able to get both sides of the field. Um, there's a lot to play with there if you're USC. And so We'll see how they do it. But, um, yeah, that was uh, impressive. I think the most impressive part about Zach Branch, we knew he was explosive. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've, we've been following him for the last two, almost three years now because his brother Zion it was, was a recruit before him. It was the composure and such – like he was almost surprised at people being surprised at how much of an impact he made first game out. It's like 96-yard touchdown. Yeah, man. You, he almost think? doesn't know how good he is. He he does. It's like he doesn't realize how hard it is to do what he does and what he did on Saturday. That's kind of how people have described it. He doesn't oh, know he how good he expects it. He yeah. expects it. He, he expe- It was like I was watching uh, the interaction with uh, Zach Branch and Caleb Williams on the sideline after I think his last touchdown. Actually, I think it was. After the kickoff, kickoff and, the, and and that and then that touchdown that he had, um, and the, so the kickoff came. Yeah, so the touchdown then was the kickoff, and he was on the sideline. He was catching the ball, and Caleb was sitting on the bench, and he's kind of talking to him about whatever. And I'm just, and I don't know, I'm not a, a lip reader, but it felt like, like Zachariah was just like, yeah, man, like you don't even know, like that's just not, that's nothing. You 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 have no idea, you have no idea how how many more touchdowns I'm going to score. Are you crazy for even thinking that that's. What do you like? It was just it just and Caleb was just laughing like, no, I mean, for real, like he's, you know, it. the old saying is, you know, act like you've been there before. That's the old saying in football. He didn't just act like he'd been there before. He acted like he already had reservations to be there time and time again. And every, it's like I just thought everybody knew that <laughs> everybody yeah. knew that I was going to score, you know, another 20 touchdowns this year and do crazy things like what do you what were you why would you even think otherwise? That's what it that's what it looked like, the body language and the composure that he had in that game. Over under 12 touchdowns this season for him. Over. Okay. Shotgun took did not take the bait. He said he's he's gonna be hard to get 12. He only needs 10 more. He only needs 10 more. I mean, he he is it's it's a it's a weird thing because he's um he's supplemental to the passing game at this point. You know, he's not like one of the main players, I mean, you know, Dorian Singer and Brendan Rice, and even to some extent, Kyron Hudson are kind of like the main stay receivers, Mario Williams as well. Like all those guys are sort of, okay, established receivers. They know the offense, they're veterans. And, you know, I think the confidence with Dorian went up after the first game, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that touchdown pass was a little high and Dorian plucked it out of the air. And I think, you know, that's the type of stuff that really builds confidence with the quarterback. He knows, okay, my guy's going to go out there. He's going to go make a play for me. I don't have to put it on the numbers every time. And so, you know, you have those guys. And again, some of this has to do with Brendan becoming more consistent, playing more like he did in the Tulane game than he did maybe at other points during the year. But those guys are like, they're established receivers and they, and they are there. They're good in the run game. They're good run uh, blockers as well. Uh, Kyron, Kyron Hudson's a very good run blocker. And so, you know, you're kind of, it, it's almost like Zach Branch right now is a wrinkle to that. And he's, and he's going to be able to score. And, he's and, a big and, old wrinkle. 
and the and the the, the special teams uh, aspect of it as well. It's very easily to see him uh, being a guy that's going to be. Um, it's going to affect the special teams to some extent. You know, you're going to have to have guys kick that through the end zone. Don't let him get that, and uh, don't let don't you know what, how's that going to work in the punt game? You know, you don't want those situations where you're punting the ball 25 yards because your your punter's got to kick it out of bounds. You can't. You do not want that band plan after, you know, he gets going with those punt returns. And we saw that with Reggie Bush and it did affect football games. So yeah. Um, I feel, I feel like, yeah, he could potentially get there for sure. All right, Gerard, we've talked a lot about the San Jose state game from Saturday. Let's go a little bit further back in time for some Friday night lights. We were at multiple games on Friday. You have talked about it already on the show. You were kind of eager to jump into Friday Night Lights, but you went to see Philip Bell and Dijon Lee at Mission Viejo versus Citrus Valley. Five stars only Jarrett was at Jay Sarah versus San Bernardino Aquinas. And then I took in Milliken versus Cathedral, not far from my place in Long Beach, so stayed pretty local. But, Gerard, which game do you want to talk about first? Well, I'll talk about... Uh, the game I went to go out and see, and I was uh, kind of. How long um, was that drive for you? It, it was like an hour, fifteen minutes, which is oh my goodness, and ridiculous. So same county, man. <laughs> I've been, I've been to Citrus, Citrus Valley. Fun fact: I used to be the sports editor of the Redlands Daily Fact, so I know all those schools: Redland East Valley, Redlands High School, Citrus Valley, uh, Dave Aranda, the pride of Redlands High School. Yeah, so I used to cover sports out there for an entire year, and I used to commute. Uh, not every day, but like pretty much uh, four times a week to Redlands from Long Beach. I was making that. Oh my that gosh. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you lived out there. No, no. I didn't oh. know I would leave Long Beach. I did it for a whole year. Nearly killed me. I mean, Nearly yeah. killed me, Gerard. It uh, kind of depends on when you're driving out. If you're driving out in so, the morning, traffic yeah. is kind of going the opposite way. Yeah, I was in a good position where I would time it. So where I was leaving, I didn't, I wasn't hitting any traffic. And then I was so late when I was leaving that I wasn't really hitting any traffic. But it's still a long, a long oh, it's ass a drive. drive. It's a drive. It's always this kind of surprising drive because I mean I'm an IE guy, and you're like, oh yeah, you know, it's in the IE, and it's just the problem is uh, that time of night on Friday you're going with traffic, um, so you're you're actually where everybody's coming home from LA and they're driving back out to the IE. Um, you know, you've got 60, to, what was I 60 to the 15 to the 10 to the two fifteen? I think it was. And I think I just can't traffic on every single yeah. freaking one. I got there early and everything, but I was just like, God, I just keep forgetting how, how far out this is. So yeah, Citrus Valley, brand new high school, beautiful Kurt Brewer, uh, the head coach who was the shout out to KB, KB, to our KB. guy, awesome, awesome dude. Um, he built Rev, you know, Redlands East Valley, uh, the son <laughs> Jalen of Phillips, Dick Bruick, a, a full high legend, Fontana legend. He is uh, Inland Empire royalty when it comes to football. And mm. um, he's yeah out there building uh, Citrus Valley up, who had a great year last year, a good football team. And they ended up uh, losing. I think it was 38-14. It was a very close game for a while. I think it was only 14-7 at halftime. Um, and Mission Viejo, just, you know, one of the better public schools in Southern California, just bigger, just more athletes, you know, just kind of ended up leaning against them and leaning against them and, uh, were able to make some big plays, but I was there to, uh, ISO film Philip Bell and DJ Lee, who we have film and I, I almost have enough film to put up on Bell, 
but our boy five stars only is down there in South Orange County. And I got a feeling he's going to be able to catch them more. So we might do more of a compilation type of Philip Bell um, thing, you know, from, uh, from, from most, from, from maybe like two or three games. I, I feel like sometimes that's a little better, you know, it's a little more unique and um, it's uh, just maybe representing the skill set a little more. But Philip Bell had a, had a decent game. He had four or five catches, um, didn't have any touchdowns. He had a couple touchdowns the week before. But uh, Citrus Valley was doing a pretty good job trying to kind of keep him bracketed and not letting him get loose too often. There was one or two plays which he probably could have gotten loose on the skinny post if the ball was thrown at the right time, uh, but it wasn't. Mission um, Viejo again kind of kind of struggled a little bit early on to get uh, going. It, it kind of was a attrition game uh, where they were able to kind of pull away at the end. DJ Lee uh, played okay. Um, you know, I think uh, there was a play, and I, I'm not sure if it was on him or the safety where uh, the wide receiver got wide open downfield, and uh, I think they uh, got an easy touchdown off of that. Um, one of those things where I think you know DJ Lee still kind of getting. Getting his feet wet, varsity football. You know, I know he's not played mm-hmm. with a lot of reps. And so he was playing a little bit of offense and, and saw a little bit of that too. And he was uh, working out quite a bit uh, pregame with the offense. So I think that's very good for him. I think, you know, he's tall. He's 6'4", probably 190 pounds. He's a huge corner. You know, he's right up there with uh, Malik Crawford in terms of, um, you know, just like a, a an aberration of a corner just being that tall. Uh, but I do think um, getting to work on the offensive side of the ball will help him quite a bit. Uh, just with his awareness, his vision, and uh, his ball skills. And so, um, again, I think uh, that'll that'll turn into maybe more of a compilation type video uh, where we get uh, some more film from them. In fact, they're going to be playing Long Beach Poly this weekend. So maybe you or JP will go up there and check that game out, and we'll get video, and maybe uh, we'll put that together with uh, the Redlands uh, Citrus Valley video as well. So um, that was the game that I saw this past weekend. And, uh, Chris, you were out there uh, at Milliken. Yeah, I was out at uh, Long Beach Milliken. They had their home opener. They went to uh, Hawaii for their first game and got absolutely destroyed. I don't, I don't think they scored a touchdown. It might have been like forty to three or something like that. So they were eager for a win, hosting Cathedral, which uh, beat them in a close game last season to open the the year. So they were coming in here looking for limping a little bit, trying to trying to get in the win column. Cathedral had won their opener, so. 0-1 versus 1-0, and I picked a great game to go to, Gerard, because USC commit four-star wide receiver Ryan Pelham had himself a night, had three total touchdowns, took the opening kickoff 92 yards to the house, had an amazing Moss catch over two defenders for a touchdown, and then ended the night with a dagger in a 46-36 to win with a little screen uh, maybe 19-yard touchdown to to cap it all off. And on top of that, was playing safety uh, for the defense. So did a little bit of everything, three touchdowns in Gerard. You know, we film a lot of games. It was just one of those games for me where I was in the right position every single time for all of his touchdowns. Got great shots of that, uh, that Moss touchdown. Was picked the right spot for the kickoff return, and he did it right in front of me. Even got some great sideline footage. So... That highlight video is already up, so I put that up. You can check that out, but Gerard, it was just one of those nights where I could not miss when it came to shooting video. Yeah, he was uh, great during the offseason as well. A little chatty. Sometimes he gets a little chatty. I think he got thrown out of the game for that. 
I did um, want I did want to talk about that because I did observe <laughs> that. Uh, a little a little, little chatty. We know he can be a little little trash talky, a little over emotional, and this is kind of my first time really like watching that and watching that in depth in a game, and it's very apparent why it's like brought up with him because there were a lot of times where he would just you know trash talk and I. And it didn't. It wasn't even like situations where he needed to. He was just doing it to do it. And you know, it's been described to me as like that's how he like fires himself up. But it, but it definitely like affected his usage. For an example, there was because the, the, the coaching staff knew, like, like we have to like we have to get get on this early before it like derails and he gets you know a personal foul and then you get to you you're suspended or you miss the next game. So like he would have a moment where maybe he got maybe he's blocking on a play and you know there's a little extra shoving a little extra drawing and they'll, they'll pull him right out. There was a play where he caught like a uh, or I think it was a run like a like a handoff in the backfield uh, going across a sweep kind of play and he got tackled like two yards or something and then like he didn't like how the defender didn't get off him and he like kind of like kicked at him like he was on the ground on top of him and he kind of kicked at him and there was like a little bit of a didn't start a fight or anything, but it was like, hey, hey, what, what's going on? And so they quickly pulled him out. And there was another play uh, in the red zone where he, I think he tried to run it again, didn't get anywhere. Again, jawing, and then they have to pull him out. And he wasn't on the field for the third and five play in the red zone. And, you know, that's significant. Your best player isn't on the field for your third and five, a critical play because Cathedral was actually coming back in this game and Milliken kind of did, did enough to win this. And, you know, if it kind of felt like there was a point where they were going to lose this game and they were going to give it up. But yeah, I mean, just think about that. Your, your best player is not on the field for a third and five play in the red zone that you really need. I think they ended up not getting it. And I think they ended up uh turnover on downs because they couldn't, they went for an on fourth and they targeted him, but it was way uh, outside of the back of the end zone. So again, that's like something notable. Like it's something he'll have to control and get better at, at the college level, because yeah, that that's not going to fly in, in college and at that next level. So it definitely stood out to me and I'm definitely curious to see how that evolves. If there, he matures a little bit in terms of, you know, curbing that, that intensity, you, you do like a player that plays with an edge but you want it kind of like Amon Ross St. Brown, and you don't want someone who's like constantly, constantly, it's a point where you have to take them out because you're worried about kind of the repercussions that that's going to have, whether that's through penalty or whether maybe that's losing him to a suspension and whatnot. Yeah, it's um, it's not necessarily that you're out of control. It's just that in those types of situations, you're giving the officials the ability to judge Mm -hmm. what is happening there. And if they don't like it and they don't like the body language or they just saw the shove that you made as opposed to the shove prior, you know, you get yourself in that situation where you're getting personal fouls and you get kicked out of games and things like that. So yeah, hundred percent something that he's got to tone down. Um, JP five-star Jared Perez went out to go see Jay Sarah versus San Bernardino Aquinas, not St. Thomas Aquinas from Fort Lauderdale. That was uh, St. John Bosco went out there and beat 
St. Thomas Aquinas, which I thought was going to be a tough game for them. I mean, I think they ended up winning. It's like 20, 20 to, to seven, 7 or something. Yeah, yeah something like that. Big win for St. John Bosco going across yeah. the country. Not one of their strongest teams that they've had in recent years. And they certainly not there. Yeah. And they uh, they're able to beat uh, one of the best teams in Florida. So, you know what, man? CIF, what can you say? Uh, <laughs> everybody's talking about <laughs> how you got to go out of state and go find this guy and that guy. And it's just like the high school football is just dominating uh, in Southern California. But um, Jay Sarah playing uh, San Bernardino Aquinas, uh, very overmatched mm-hmm. um, team here uh, against uh, Jay Sarah, Trinity League type team. Going to see Madden Ferriamo and Jake Flores. And uh, Chris, you'd spoken to Jake Flores a little earlier in the year after he got a scholarship offer from USC, uh, the uh, offensive lineman. And Madden Ferriamo, a guy that's uh, another uh, kind of like with Philip Bella borderline, four-star, five-star type guy, played mostly safety when he was down in San Diego, played for Cathedral Catholic. He's transferred to Jay Sarah. Now he's playing more Mike Linebacker. And um, talked a little bit about that transition. Uh, we have a write-up on him. He was actually not at the game, but uh, JP caught up with him afterwards, and he did watch the game on television, which is always a good sign. You know, mm-hmm. first uh, he had Pac-12 Network, which is a bit astonishing. <laughs> Um, but well, uh, he he said he had packed a number. He didn't like admit it was a, a bootleg stream or oh, something. I, I, no, I don't. I don't think that that was that was mentioned. I, I don't know. I didn't ask uh, JP. I just assumed it was right after the game. So I, I figured he probably uh, watched the game on on television. But um, a guy that you know, another guy that where I'd say I think USC is in a really good position for. Uh, again, family. People around him that know USC and they know USC above and beyond just, you know, the last handful of years. And so, you know, Madden, um, he's had a cousin. I think he's had two cousins that have gone to USC and um, the one uh, being a very good volleyball player. And then he's got a sister was at UCLA as a softball player. Very West Coast type kid right now, but could be a national recruit. Uh, One of the better players. He was very good in the game. And um, I can't recall off the top of my head what his stats were, but I know he made uh, quite the impact. And I think he had two sacks, uh, if I recall off the top of my head, and uh, was a guy that we're going to see a lot more. We do have video of him. Um, I'm going to have to review it. I haven't taken a look at it yet. Uh, the ISO film that uh, Jarrett had, uh, I think he I think he sent that to me already. I think it's on the drive. We'll look at it and see if, you know, we'll, we're probably going to see him multiple times uh, this year. We actually uh, did see him, Connor, uh, Morissette actually went out to the Sierra Canyon J. Sarah game in the previous week. So I also saw him there. But uh, in that game, we were kind of focused on uh, the two USC commits, um, Mr. Uh, DJ Jordan. Jordan. And uh, he wants to go by DJ now. So. Get, okay, he goes. Uh, DJ is what he goes by. I mean, that's I just say Xavier because, you know, whatever. Um, that's his. That's his name in the database. But, yeah, no, no, he goes by DJ. When I see him, I just I call him DJ. But um, the same with Dijon Lee. Dijon Lee is is, is DJ. Um, but uh, I don't want to reference uh, – if we start referencing DJ right. and it's not in the database and people are like, wait, who are they talking about? You know, because you, you, you guys that are listening know these prospects by whatever their name is in the database. So I try to kind of keep it, you know, with that um, when we're referencing somebody. But, uh, yeah, uh, he, uh, you know, Connor was kind of focused on those two guys and didn't get to see – uh, a lot of uh, Madden, but I mean, I think he's, man, he's up there. He's, he's one of the best linebackers in the nation. You see him up close and you watch him. Uh, very, very good athlete. Um, he has some uh, interesting skill sets. Uh, again, family is just very athletic, you know, having been very good, multiple different sports 
and he himself is, uh, I believe, a, a fairly good volleyball player, if I recall. So, yeah, definitely one of those guys that, um, you know, I think USC is in a good place with them. They got to get these guys to campus. You know, you want to see a better turnout for games during the season uh, as it goes forward. I think, you know, we didn't really mention this or talk about this in the recruiting angle. Uh, not a ton of big name recruits. It was projected to be a little better list. I think part of that had to do with Bosco and modern day playing on the road on a Saturday. Um, I think maybe some of those kids just forgot that they were going to be, you know, on the road on a Saturday game mm-hmm. and they weren't going to be able to be back. I know I talked to uh, Nasir Wyatt uh, like a month before the home opener and he was talking about being at USC for the home opener. And then I think just didn't realize I even talked to him after the game, uh, the Centennial game, uh, the week one opener. And he was like, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to try to make it out to the game. And then I was like, no, you, you're going to be in Utah Saturday. I think you guys play like at night. So that's going to be kind of difficult to be uh, in the Coliseum. So, yeah, um, that that probably took a lot of the flair away from the unofficial visit list. Uh, because there's so many good players at both those programs. We'll see going forward, you know, but you got to get these modern day guys on the campus. You got, cause it, it does make an impact. I mean, every time you get multiple kids from either school that are on campus, there's always this sort of buzz like, Oh man, USC's man, they made up a lot of ground with this player, that player. I mean, that goes back to Xavier Brown. It goes back to Brandon Baker, you know, all these guys, when they were on campus and they took those unofficial visits, the immediate, sort of uh, a vibe and impression was that USC was, was really in a good spot with them and, and had either made up a lot of ground or even maybe were the leader at that point in time. And then they disappear for three months and they're taking all these other, other official visits to other schools. And it's like out of sight, out of mind and USC loses all that momentum. So you gotta kind of have to flex your muscle locally and take advantage of these guys just being down the road and do whatever you got to do to get these guys on campus, you know, got to make the connections with the coaches or the trainers or the handlers or the NIL lawyers or whoever the hell else has a car to get the kid to campus <laughs> so he can watch the game and be around the players and be around the coaches and, and have uh, that sort of rapport that really helps you. AIDA, get out there. You got the prospects coming in. You think they came in to get out of the rain? Gerard, moving on to our final topic after we uh, tackled those Friday night lights. USC, another game this week, week one for the rest of the country. I mean, still week one for USC, but their second week of opponents taking on the Nevada Wolfpack, which is a very bad team. At least they were last season. They're kind of rebuilding with a new head coach. Ken Wilson coming over from Oregon. 10-game losing streak coming into this season. 2-10 last year, 0-8 in conference play. Gerard, this might be the worst team that they play all season. Yes, I'm factoring in Stanford and Cal and potentially Colorado, who people think, you know, I don't know, might be a Pac-12 contender. I am not in that, that train. I think it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. So, Nevada could be the worst team they play this week. I expect it to be more similar to what we saw at San Jose State with a lot of, you know, rotation and kind of scrimmage-like appeal. But, Gerard, what are – we did this for the first week. What are kind of three things you are looking for for this week's game against the Wolfpack? Yeah, I think um, we touched on it a little bit with the San Jose State game is – the follow-up on the defensive line and how they play against the run and how they play against the pass. Now, I haven't 
yet really looked at Nevada um, to know kind of what they're bringing in offensively. I know that they've had uh, some turnover with coaches, um, you know, kind of late in the process. But um, USC needs to swarm and just be a little better as a unit. There needs to be more communication with the D-line and those guys just kind of understanding, you know, wh- where they're going to be and how far upfield, you know, everybody's getting and, and just sort of be a little more of a cohesive unit uh, from a pass rush um, disruptor standpoint, you know, not getting too upfield, not having one guy completely out of position because, you know, he's seven yards upfield and the next guy is not. Um, just that sort of thing, you know. Uh, they, they've got to be a little more disciplined. they got to break down a little better. Just fundamentally uh, looking at the, that front wall of the defense, if it's a wall or if it's um, just kind of all over the place, uh, a net with big holes in it. Um, you know, it's I, I, you know, kind of on that thought, you know, sort of seeing the rotation and, and how it's adjusted. I liked what I saw from Jamil Muhammad. I kind of still feel like Anthony Lucas should be a five technique and he should be competing with Solomon Bird at five technique. And Jamil Muhammad is your rush end. And Jamil Muhammad should be there with uh, Romelo Height and Braylon Shelby. Uh, I feel like that's your best grouping. Um, I think with you, I think it's a bigger, more athletic line that you have now. Um, it's nice to have that type of size with Anthony Lucas as a rush end. And Anthony Lucas could play, probably play rush end, you know, against both these teams and, and, and be good. But I'm looking down the line, and I feel like, you know, that's that's where I think his ceiling is the highest is over as a five technique. You know, go back to 270, 275, become a five technique. There's nothing that I saw in the game Saturday that has changed my mind on that. You know, maybe it happened. I don't think it would happen this week because I do think Nevada is very much overpowered. And so it's kind of – it's going to be a little harder read. Uh, from that standpoint, mm-hmm. but um, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, as Jamil Muhammad played himself into the starting lineup, um, you know, what do we see from um, the rotation at, my, at Mike Linebacker and linebacker in general? We saw some different combinations thrown out there. Uh, we did see the defense play better flat out with Eric Gentry in there, whether Eric Gentry was playing with Taka Curtis or Eric Gentry was playing with Mason Cobb. It just looked better with those two guys, even with Rashawn Davidson there, who I thought played pretty well. Um, I thought that was a good combination. So it's like the common denominator there is Eric Gentry. Um, I think uh, it'll be interesting to kind of see, you know, how how those guys are, are used. Um, and again, yeah, do we see Willie Brown in this game? Uh, do we see more rotation from uh, the receivers? Are we going to see some more flashes of Deuce Robinson? You know, who you know, this is my first time really seeing Deuce Robinson out there. He has definitely lost weight. He has definitely gotten slimmer. He mm-hmm. definitely looks a bit more like a wide receiver than he did last year at, let's say, the Elite 11. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting uh, to, to, to see that and, and to see him more with the wide receiver body than he had, uh, for better or for worse. Um, and, um, you know, J- Jacoby Lane was out there. He didn't really get any targets or what have you, but. He could be a guy, you know, kind of watching and see if uh, USC puts a little more emphasis on uh, some of their, their their rotational guys and the second team um, because they don't necessarily need uh, first team guys. So uh, that'll be something to watch for, too. But um, it's just kind of like the stuff that we saw that, that they need to work on from the first game. You know, the offensive line in terms of, you know, the pass protection. Um, are they going to run the ball more? 
there's, there's not like, okay, three solid things that just stand out. It's, it's just kind of some things that stand out and then other things that are sort of uh, kind of subplots to those things. Like I said, with the defensive line, you know, sort of their cohesiveness as a, as a pass rushing unit. And then, you know, how does Jamil Muhammad fit into that equation as well? Because I felt like he was one of the few guys that really seemed to, to, to rush the passer with some amount of, uh, some amount of awareness and um, and not getting too, too um, uh, myopic sort of, you know, it kind of had blinders on it. I, I kind of felt like with Bear and, and some of the other guys, man, they were just like flying upfield and just not paying attention to, you know, down and distance and what the offense might be actually trying to do against them. Yeah, right. Grizzly Adams had a beard. Grizzly Adams did have a beard. All right, Gerard. Let's go into listener questions. Our final topic for this evening. Again, if you want to email us at a que- email us at a question, that doesn't even make any sense. If you want to get a question on the podcast, you can email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite, cilantro boys, 10K and Hurricane, the recruiting show, whatever, and it'll go to my inbox. Gerard, we don't have a ton of questions. We technically have two submissions and then a voicemail from our friend Eddie. So I'm going to play that last. But uh, are you ready to dive into these? Let's go. Andrew A. Greetings, amigos. Only one question this week. We've said that USC's talent acquisition strategy in terms of NIL is optimized for portal players, given that they are more proven, known quantities at this level and much less time-intensive to recruit. QBs might be an exception to that rule. But what happens if the portal players that USC is acquiring aren't proving to be worth the investment? Specifically referring to every one of the O-line members USC has gotten. Haskins, Pregnon, Kingston, and Tarquin. What if the plug-and-play isn't so plug-and-play? Do you foresee a situation in which Lincoln Riley reevaluates talent acquisition strategy if it turns out that this round of O-line talent can't earn starting spots. Gracias, Andrew A. It is an interesting question, but like anything, I think there is always risk when you're, quote-unquote, investing in something, when you're investing in something that is a much safer option in that uh, O-line transfers. But O-line is actually kind of an interesting one because... I guess, Gerard, we would have said this. You still need to figure out a way to bring in freshman offensive linemen. You still need to be able to sign those guys in high school. And obviously, you still want to sign, you know, a blue chip guy, an Elijah Page, a a Connerly type day one kind of guy who can walk in and potentially play. I mean, the one being now here is Alani Noah, a three-star guy. But you still want to sign those guys. But I still think the risk, uh, the lesser risk in recruiting offensive linemen out of the portal is still worth it. And I think it's way too early to already, you know, cast aside Kingston, Tarquin, and Pregnon, Pregnon as bust. It's only been one game, but I know it is concerning that there still hasn't solidified that rotation. I think Kingston will be fine. I think Tarquin would be fine. I think he had actually had a decent game on Saturday. Uh, E-Man does need to work on some things. He is a little bit slow. 
but in the in he's still also a young player as well, so he has time to develop with Kingston and Tarquin being the the veterans. And Bobby Haskins wasn't bad either. I mean, he was hurt. He was playing hurt with the thing with something that needed to be fixed with surgery. So he was playing through a lot and still was pretty decent for them. So yeah, I'm not ready to name those three guys as busts already, but I still think you would you would still play and roll those dice for guys out of the portal at the offensive line position. Ultimately, this is a question of do you go heavy into the portal or do you really try to focus more on high school? And if you're focusing more on high school, have your NIL and collective base actually put aside funds for trying to make deals for high school football players. I agree with you. Bobby Haskins being kind of one of the first and is the only one that we have enough reps to really evaluate. And these other players, we really don't have enough reps yet to evaluate whether they are worth the NIL effort. I think Bobby was a big contributor last year and was very important. I think the offensive line played better with Bobby Haskins in the game than not. So from that standpoint, being that he was your left tackle and you had a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback back there, I think that investment was solid. I don't think um, you can necessarily regret or or have uh, any super criticisms on that approach then. Now, that was a little different. Obviously, you're coming away from a year where you kind of needed to have him and you didn't have a lot of choice uh, from the high school ranks. Whereas, you know, you're going to, moving forward, have more potential choices from the high school ranks, developing those players, and then putting them in there. And I think, ultimately, USC probably recruits heavier toward the high school ranks than getting three transfers per cycle. I think three transfers per cycle is still a bit of a result from trying to rebuild the roster. I don't think that's mm-hmm. where you want to be. I think maybe one guy, you know, at most maybe two, but probably not three and certainly not four, et cetera. And USC actually had to recruit even more because they had Ethan White, yeah. who was uh, going to transfer in from Florida and then had to medically retire. So I think that you definitely uh, look at this and you're evaluating and you're still trying to get that data as to how uh, these guys contribute going forward. And then you kind of make that decision as to, okay, you know, how, how well is this working out for us? And then how much better would we be going out and getting these high school guys and then developing them um, throughout the year. Now, the thing, the caveat here is that, and this is just true of the high school football scene is you go and get highly ranked guys. And, you know, Alani Noah wasn't a highly ranked guy, so he doesn't necessarily fall in this category. Really none of the offensive linemen that USC recruited out of high school in the last class really fall into this category. Maybe Elijah Page to some extent, he was a four star. He was recruited pretty heavily. Consensus Uh, four star. Yeah. Yeah. But when you start recruiting those higher ranked players, the problem with high school is you got those guys always maybe potentially with one foot out the door. They're not getting enough playing time. You don't get time to develop them. 
You don't get time to redshirt them, to put them, um, you know, on your second team, on your third team, and then bring them up through the ranks and then be able to play them. Whereas these guys that are transferring in, you don't get as much time with them, but you're also not really worried about Pregnon leaving right away because he's just transferred. Now he's got to sit out a year if he wants to leave. So, you know, there's kind of a little bit of like, well, you know, I got to kind of stick it out here and I've already transferred. I've already done that. So there, there is a balance to that. But I do think that uh, USC looking at Mason Murphy, uh, which I am kind of mildly surprised didn't make maybe a, a bigger run playing left tackle. I'm still of the opinion I'd like to kick him down the guard, uh, honestly. I think his highest ceiling is still probably on the interior. If he gets a, a sniff from the NFL – probably would be as an interior player. Um, but I think, yeah, there's 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 a lot of data that still has to be collected. I mean, you're looking at a guy like Jarrett Kingston, who played left tackle, was a starting left tackle at Washington State, and a guy who contemplated maybe going pro as a left tackle at Washington State. Now he's playing guard at USC, right? So, okay, did you know that when you were recruiting him? You know, when he was in the transfer portal, was that already like, hey, this is a guy that we want to bring in as a guard. Or did you think he was going to be your future left tackle? Like we thought. And then you got him on campus and went, uh, no, 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 no. He needs to play guard. In that case, then you are, you're, you're, you're putting that into the con category of recruiting out of the portal, thinking you're getting something that you're not really getting. Um, whereas in the high school ranks, you might be a little more confident or you just might be a little more aware of, Hey, look at, we're going to recruit these players, but it's got to sort itself out. Who's actually going to play tackle for him, for us and who's going to end up playing guard. So I do think in the future, there's going to be less. And I think that's still at this point, the trend with the better football programs out there in college, they're still recruiting heavily out of the high school ranks. They still want to bring guys out of high school, even knowing that you stack a position and you got a four star or a five-star guy who's not going to play in the first three or four games, he could potentially be bon, bon voyage type of thing, right? Oh, you know, he's got all these people in his ear. Dude, you should be playing. You're done. You're not getting You're not getting the, your reps and blah, blah, blah. You should go. And trust me, you know, the the, the whole tampering thing, whatever, we already talked about that. It's baloney. This, there's, there's nothing to it because the high school – coaches, the trainers, whatever, they're in contact with all these coaches during the recruiting process. They got relationships with all these coaches and it's not illegal for a high school coach to go reach out to somebody because he doesn't see his guy playing, right? This trainer who makes money off of training these athletes, he wants to get these athletes into the NFL too. That's, that's a payday for him because then he can put that picture on his weight room wall and say, look at, I, I developed that guy. He, be, he started here. So I'm going to charge you this much more because you're eventually going to get there. You're going to be that guy. I'm selling the dream. So if he doesn't have those guys on the wall, he's pissed off. He's like, man, you need to go transfer somewhere else. So you get that chance to go to the NFL, man. Co I mean, coach, it's only like the first three games. I don't care. <laughs> you're a five star. You should be playing right away. You know that this is all the stuff that you're combating in the background with this stuff. And you can complain about tampering all you want, but none of that is enforceable from the NCAA. It never will be. So once you open up the portal from that standpoint, that's a Pandora's box, right? And mm -hmm. so that that's something that you have to deal with when you are recruiting out of the high school ranks. To this point, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, 
etc., they still are choosing to go to the high school ranks, even knowing that. They're gonna go stack their they're gonna go stack their rosters. They don't care if they've got five running backs in the class. They don't care. Stack the roster, get to camp, let it sort itself out after the first season. And then we're gonna have the guys play that we feel it can play with us. And if, if you're a second team guy and you're not getting your reps, oh, you know, you're a second team guy. And you're a second team guy because that's we've determined that. Could they be wrong? Could they be Urban Meyer, Cam Newton wrong? Potentially. Yeah, you could. I mean, I'm sure Urban Meyer wishes he gave Cam Newton a second chance, you know, after he went to Auburn and, and was as dominant as he was. I mean, he was the quarterback that uh, he didn't have after uh, Tim Tebow. Can you imagine if, if Cam Newton would have actually stayed at Florida and then done mm-hmm. what he, you know, did at Auburn, but at Florida? I mean, that, you know, they probably would have been in another national championship. So, yeah, there's there's always that angle. But I think most of these coaches are confident that th- their evaluation skills, once they get those guys on campus, they're going to figure out who they like and who they want. And the guys that leave, they're meant to leave. You know, you're weeding those guys out to some extent. Nick Saban just made a comment about all the guys that left uh, Alabama this past year. They had a whole bunch of guys leave. I think it was like seven, 17 or something guys that left uh, over uh, those two uh, transfer portal windows. Um, he said there's only one guy out of that group that he really felt like, you know, should have stayed and, and, and they feel like, you know, they're going to miss him. One guy uh, out of 17. So that's part of the 2020 class where a lot of those players didn't get in-person evaluations because of COVID. So I think that participated uh, was, was, was part of why you see so many guys that were transferring. There was some weeding out from some of these college football teams and they're guys that they went on and they didn't have a full evaluation of, and then they got them on campus and they had them for a year or two. And they're like, yeah, these guys are not going to play. So we're not, we're not going to be concerned about them leaving. They might've said, Hey, you should leave. Cause that happens as well. There's, there's those instances where the coaching staff will come and just uh, sit down with the young man and say, listen, you're not going to play here. They want us free up a uh, roster space for guys. They feel like can, can contribute or at least push you know, for playing time. So it raises the level of competition. So I think going forward, I mean, we still see at this point, the heavy hitters in college football are going hard into the high school ranks. And I think that you will see that more and more with USC uh, going forward. Our next question comes from Rich and SD, who has a three-part question per usual. Okay. I've processed and heard many and many platforms that this is, that this uh, I'm just going to start over. Okay, I processed and heard many on many platforms that this was a glorified scrimmage. That said, here are a couple things looking for your opinion. Kind of, I'm going to kind of lump the first two together, though. Playing for both, oh, play calling. Wait, playing calling. Oh, my God. <laughs> you want me to read it? No, 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 I no, 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 no. I, I got it. Play calling for both O and D. It's one thing to say that they have a lot to work on, but if you're calling the wrong plays, third and 22 on D, or calling triple option on O, it's not the players but the coaches that are overthinking this. And the one I'm kind of lumping in here is on that touchdown at the end of the half, who or what was more at fault, Damani Max or the play call? I'll take the second one here. It was on both Damani and the play call. Because Alex Grinch said earlier this week that it's on him that he called that play 
that coverage for Damani, which they had not practiced a lot of. So Damani was not exactly experienced for it, and he got confused with it, and obviously you saw a blown coverage because of it. So I'm going to say it's both Damani and the play call. Alex Grinch called a play that Damani wasn't as familiar with, one they had not practiced enough. So that's kind of what the pairing was. So I guess we can blame it on both of those things from column A and column B. And as far as the first one with play calling, remember the play calling for this game, it's a scrimmage. They're not going to show everything. And with the third and 22, as we've established, that was more so on Bear Alexander kind of stunting the wrong way. If he stunts the other way, that Chevin Cordero is likely not going to pick this up. So that was more of a mistake on the player. A Bear Alexander, a young player who's still we have to remember is just a true sophomore, you know, he, so he made the mistake that compounded with Mason Cobb kind of, uh, going left with that. And the whole defensive line got walled off, leaving that big old open space. So yeah, that's, that's kind of more on a player, but again, why are you bringing that much pressure on a third and 22? So also could go back to that, but yeah, on play calling, you're not really in this game, which is a glorified scrimmage. You're not, supposed to give away a lot of stuff and you're just kind of cat and mouse game you're not you're not calling things that you're going to see in south bend you're not calling things you're going to call in otson stadium those are you save those bullets for that time so you're not going to be giving your best stuff obviously in a glorified scrimmage you want to give a little thing so maybe the schools down the line or look in like hey they ran a triple option in the san jose state game should we be working on this so it's all it's all cat and mouse with these coaches and, and calling stuff and showing stuff and what they want coaches to look at and not to look at. So I, I wouldn't be as concerned about play calling for both O and D. I think Lincoln Riley only motioned like twice in this game. Obviously, that's not uh, that's not indicative of his offense. And obviously, why would you show everything you're going to be doing in a game against San Jose State and what we have boiled down to being a quote unquote glorified scrimmage i agree with your premise partly i think what the question is really stating here i think it's kind of almost a rhetorical question to some extent is it's a pattern of decision making from the coaching staff and regardless of sort of the opponent it's are we going to get more of this which is what we saw last year, where there were decisions to drop defensive ends and rush ends and coverage and blitz in certain situations where it didn't necessarily make sense within the context of the game. And so when you see it in the first game, it's reminiscent of things that we saw last year. So it's not the first time just in a, a complete out-of-nowhere type of thing happened once. It's a little bit of a pattern, and I think that's – where Trojan fans are continuing to pound the drum about the defense and Alex Grinch, mostly. I don't think it really there's so much concern about the offense and the offensive play calling. I think it definitely carries over more from last season and the defense. And wanting to see a different approach than what you saw in some of those games last year. Um, specifically with that touchdown at the end of the half, it was what 
ended up looking like an inverted cover two, where a normal cover two in that situation is understandable to some extent. What's the context? 13 seconds left in the half. Okay. You're getting within field goal range. Um, I don't know the range of San Jose's field goal kicker, but they were getting within field goal range. I think they're kind of on the cusp at that point. If you give up the flat, you could potentially give up a good 10, 12 yards on the flat if you're playing in a more of a conservative quarters coverage. So I can see where Alex Grinch wants to continue to play the flat and just to have eyeballs on it because a guy could catch the ball right there and probably get an extra five, you know, six yards, and that's going to help a potential field goal, right? The problem is running that exotic type of coverage where in a normal cover two, your corner is going to sit there on that flat. He's going to basically release a little bit, and then he's going to pass off the receiver deep to the safety who's over the top, which let's say it's Max Williams, could have been Caleb Bullock, whoever is going to have uh, that uh, that high route if the receiver does what he did on that route, which was just basically a go route into the end zone. So the difference in running a traditional cover two in that situation and why it would have worked better is that the cornerback would have had his eyes on the flat the whole time. You know, he's backpedaling the whole time. And he sees that there is no threat in the flat. No one ran into the flat. He can sink farther in and make that maybe a a little tougher throw. And then you have the safety who the whole time is, again, eyes towards the line of scrimmage. He sees the route coming. He sees his angle. He knows where he's got to be to get over top of that route and try to make a play on the football. What ended up happening running that type of what came out to be basically a cover two is that you're moving your safety up near the line of scrimmage, he's filling the flat, and then he's trying to turn and go. He's not really keeping his eyes completely on the flat, and he doesn't know until he gets there whether somebody's going to be in the flat or not. He doesn't start that play knowing. So now you're switching off, and your 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 cornerback has now got to turn and go, and he's running like he's in the, it would be almost a quarters, but in this case, he's basically playing as the safety. He has to take the route deep so he's got to turn and go the big problem with Damani is that he hugs the inside of the hash for some reason I don't know why I don't I don't know he's looking inside as if there's a slot receiver running down the seam and there's a safety there that would play that so you're sort of kind of squeezing that seam route which isn't actually being run by anybody and you're letting the guy that's on the sideline who is the most immediate threat for Damani running down the sideline free. It was an easy, easy touchdown. So to your point, bad call. And not just because they hadn't practiced it. I mean, I guess to some extent you could say that was an issue because that's why Damani hugs the hash instead of being more towards the sideline and knowing what his first threat is going to be. But to some extent, that should be instinctual. Like you kind of need to know your initial keys and like who is – the first threat that's that's you know something that in all positions you kind of have to read and but it, it also was even if they run it right really not what you want to have like it, it, it sort of put your players 
in a position which they were not able to play fast. You don't play fast doing that right there, what they did. They're, they're, you're kind of having to sort of augment your eyes a little bit and get to a position and then kind of read what's going on. It just it didn't work really well. So I understand the point, I think, with the question is, haven't we seen this before? You know, haven't we seen this with Solomon uh, Bird dropping into coverage, um, maybe Nick Figueroa trying to cover a defensive or excuse me, a, a running back down the side of the field, uh, just trying to be maybe a little too exotic. You know, we saw a lot of blitzes right up the middle against uh, San Jose State, and they were absolutely nullified by either guys just not blitzing in the right gaps, getting picked up, running themselves completely out of the play, which I believe they got walled off on that third 22, and, and that was part of the issue too because they looked like they had a bit of a spy with Mason Cobb but he just ended up having a horrible angle. When you start to see your defenders habitually taking bad angles, that's a sign that they're not in the right place at the right time, and that's the coaches have to line you up and get you in the right position. When you start seeing guys that are you know, athletic guys, like they're good players or fast, but they're just running themselves out of plays and, and, they're, and they're having to take bad angles, that's their, the positioning and the scheme. That's where you start to question – those type of things, especially from a guy that's, you know, all big 12 conference player. Um, you know, he's not a bad player. You know, we know Mason Cobb is, is is a guy that can contribute at this level and can do some good things. And he looks a little too much like Raylan Goforth in that game. So I see where the criticism comes from. It's the pattern of seeing these guys look out of position. Whereas when you watch Pete Carroll's defenses, you saw guy that guys that weren't that athletic, you know, guys like in, in no offense to to Champ Bailey or Champ Bailey. Champ Bailey is one of the best athletes that played football. Champ Simmons, excuse me. Champ Bailey was a, was a receiver cornerback at, at Georgia that was a, a great player. But Champ Simmons and, and Jason Legion, some guys that were just, you know, kind of like three star players that, um, you know, Kevin Ellison. Kevin Ellison was a, a guy at a Redondo Beach. It was like a four seven four seven five. A player at high school that, that, that kind of played linebacker was a safety, and you know he wasn't the fastest player in the world, but they set him up for success. They 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 saw what they had in him: physical, quick, great eyes, smart. Matt Grudigan, another example, great example, undersized, slow, had no business being an outside linebacker at the college football level. But hell, the guy had the most amazing instincts, physical, aggressive, just. He could just do things despite his size, you know, despite not being this uh, this really super fast player or whatever. And those Pete Carroll defenses, those guys, they flourished. It wasn't just the Sean Cody's. It wasn't just the guys that were like, you know, five star guys. I mean, Kenichio Daisy wasn't a five star guy. Mike Patterson wasn't a five star guy. There's so many examples of that. It's those guys that are kind of like playing over the heads. That's when you know like the scheme is supplementing what you have on the field. But when you have the star players and they're fat, they look fast, but they just are all over the place and they're just running by tackles and missing tackles and taking angles. And all of a sudden now they 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 start to look slow. They don't look slow, but they they're just like, how is this player always chasing? <laughs> Why are your linebackers always running behind this quarterback? And you know, to give credit to San Jose's quarterback, he he's athletic. You know, he's a he's a decent athlete. He's a returner. He's a guy that um, you know I think he's going to be up there for whack honors. I think he's he's a good player. Uh, but some of those plays are absolutely a lack of awareness 
and discipline by the front seven. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that. And they've got to tighten that up. And I think the fan base at this point is just frustrated because this is your chance to do that, right? That San Jose State, opening opening game of the season, you worked all offseason on all this. You've heard all the criticism. The defense, those guys are trying to rally around it. You know, Max Williams and those guys are like, you know, we've, we've heard all of it. The haters are out there. We're going to use that to motivate us. And then you went out against San Jose State and gave 396 up and uh, got conversions on third and 11 and gave up a big run in the second half of, you know, like what was it, 25 yards, 30 yards. That kind of stuff is, you know, it's a little bit too much deja vu, I think, for some of the fan base. The final question is, even though it was one play, Christian Roland Wallace had a nice pass breakup on third down playing press. I don't think Sierra Wright has the physicality to body up anyone. I didn't see him play press once. Is that a player preference not to play, not to press, or is it the play call? I don't, I don't think Sierra Wright is a press guy. Remember, Makai Blackman was very elite in press coverage last season, and Sierra Wright opposite him. I don't think that's his, his style. Uh, I would say he's more of that, uh, that field corner kind of thing, as opposed to the boundary, which is your bigger, more physical guy. So I just, I don't see Sierra Wright as a kind of that physical cornerback opposed to as like a Damani Jackson on the other side, who's six foot one, one ninety, and just physically built. They're very different body types. So yeah, I don't think it's his preference to be a press corner. Yeah. That's dependent on the opponent who you're playing against um, your safeties. Safeties didn't have a great game against San Jose state. Kalen Bullock was a little quiet in that game. And, I think with Sierra Wright, first and foremost, with press, uh, physicality is one thing, but really it's more if you're going to play man or you're going to play a, a cover two type of press. You know, are you going to be man under and you can press, but you know that you have a safety over the top? Or are you going to play super, super aggressive and play press and play man, which you don't see a whole lot of in college football, quite frankly? It's not really super difficult, though. The most difficult coverage from talking to all of the defensive backs that I've spoken to over the years and, and, and certainly just even recently, it's playing man off. That's the most difficult because you're off. You have no contact with the receiver. You can't reroute immediately and you're kind of in space a little bit and they could do a lot of different things before they actually get to that apex and you know kind of where the route is going. And so I mean, it could just be very much uh, Dante Williams kind of giving a Sierra a, a, a dose of the most difficult coverage he's going to be in. And um, and again, you know, that's where the whole talk of, ex, you know, glorified scrimmage comes in, throwing some things, putting your guys in some uncomfortable positions. I mean, that happens a lot in scrimmages. It happens a lot in practices where you get guys playing out of position and doing different things. And the coaches are trying to evaluate what the weaknesses are. They know what their strengths are. They want to see what their weaknesses are. And I would say with Sierra, right. The two things he's got going for him. He's not short. He's not small. He, he's actually got good height to him and he's fast. He's a guy that was a 10, eight guy out of high school in track. And that was like his junior year. So uh, you can play man corner with a, with a talent like that, that has that type of skill set. You know, obviously the fundamentals have to be there. And um, you don't want them to be grabby. And, and Sierra's got, I think, early in his career, a little rep being a little too grabby. And he got a pass interference penalty even in that game 
uh, where he was, uh, you know, grabbing the shirt of the player. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's a big deal. I don't, I, I, you know, whether they're playing press man or playing off man, it, it's really, you know, you're playing man coverage or you're in zone coverage a lot. And uh, USC has been a bit more aggressive uh, playing a lot more man coverage. And we'll just see how it goes forward when they, when they play against teams that are a little more prolific offensively and they've got multiple receivers that could do multiple things, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Our final question, as I said, was a voicemail from Eddie, but again, Ryan has just given up on putting voicemails in our box. So this is, Going to be the jankiest way we did it, like we did it last time. So I'm just going to play this, and then I hope you can hear it, Gerard. So let's give it a roll. Let's give it a whirl. Hello. Cilantro boys, what's going on? Uh, driving my car right now. Thought I'd send uh, Chris a message on IG. Um, you know, the, the game on Saturday was... Um, I want to hear what Gerard thinks about the idea of um, just, you know, treating that first game like a, you know, a preseason game and then just start, uh, playing a ton of freshmen and how that might impact recruiting, saying, like, look, we played, you know, seven freshmen right away. Yeah, we take in transfers, but if you're good, we'll get you on the field. Um, and, you know, hopefully you can you know, keep on getting minutes. So I want to see what Gerard's thoughts about that. Also, you know, um, you're just uh, excited for another year. And guys, guys, let's make one. Everyone chill. Everyone chill. Were you able to hear that, Gerard? Yeah, I did. And, you know, I mean, it is obviously something that we kind of already touched on a, a bit. I mean, right. I, I think, you know. Bring it on home. To sum it up. <laughs> to sum yes. it up. It's good to get freshmen on the field, and you can use those stats for recruiting. It's good to get them on the field just for their own development. You know, you want to get them in when you can, you know, where you feel like, hey, this is opponent. We can get some guys out there. They can make some mistakes, and we're not going to lose the game because of it. And so, for sure, and this week will be the same. I I think it's the the same thing. I get Stanford a little different, a little different. Um, you're dealing with a team that's got some more Division One athletes, and they could, you know, present a little more of a challenge for you at the end of the game. We saw that last year, you know, where USC they were blowing the blowing the the doors off of Stanford, and then kind of fell asleep, and all of a sudden Stanford's knocking on the door, and it's like, what? We didn't know that door was there. We thought we blew it off. It's it's back, and you're knocking on it now. Yeah, that was um, not 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 a great ending to that game. They didn't finish that game. Uh, well, they didn't finish this game well. I mean, they let that touchdown in the last few minutes. And it's, it's interesting because I remember against Rice in the opener where there was an instance at the end of the game where I think Rice was near the goal line. I'm remembering this correctly. And USC called a timeout. Lincoln Riley went out in the field, and he was livid. He was in the ear of that defense. He was in the huddle of the defense on the sideline, and he was telling them, finish the game finish the game and you didn't see that at the end of this game they didn't get into that um it wasn't really like a goal line situation per se but usc gives up that touchdown it's just you know one of those things that you you just i know that gets under the skin 
of a coaching staff and you want to finish the game. So um, I think that's uh, going to be kind of a, uh, maybe a message uh, with, with this week, but it's going to be a message for the younger guys. That's the thing because they're going to be the guys that are probably going to be in the game. It's going to be your second string, third string guys, your young guys. And so um, that's a big part of all of this as well. Yes. With the recruiting process, it is great to say, look at Zach branch. That can be you next year. I mean, look, I just talked about Philip Bell and, you know, he talked about Zach Branch and he, you know, it's funny because he wasn't really all that. Um, he was talking more about Caleb Williams and just, man, that, that boy is just built different and wow. And, and I'm like, so what about Zach Branch? Like, what did you, what did you think about Zach Branch, man? That number one, like you were number one. Is that, uh, you know, something that you, you kind of figured out on? He's like, yeah, you know, I've known Zach for a while, you know, younger guys around the circuit, seven on seven camps. When we travel, you see those guys, you see the older guys, you know what they could do. So he, he was actually kind of like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's Zach branch. That's, that's what he can do. He wasn't like totally necessarily surprised or blown away um, by that. You know, I guess we weren't really surprised and blown away either. I, I, there was more the composure that I was pleasantly surprised by the way, you know, he just kind of went along his business uh, after scoring those touchdowns, but um, that definitely helps and it sells. Uh, certainly the more impact those freshmen have and the flashes that they're able to make. And for sure these weeks, you know, this is where you want to get those guys in there and um, get them some playing time because it's good for their development and it's good for them just to, you know, their friends or family come to see their first college football game and they get some reps and they get out there. I mean, that's big too. Keep some, you know, somewhat pacified because maybe later in the year, you're going to have to take that Richard, you know, you're not going to be able to contribute. So, uh, We'll see uh, again this week. I think it's going to be from that standpoint, there's going to be some rotation. Lincoln Riley did imply there might not be as much rotation, um, but you know, the game could dictate, dictate that as well. You know, if you actually are up uh, by more, you know, at half and you're going in that third quarter and it's 42, nothing. Yeah. Those, those second team got second team and 13 guys are going to come in the game and they'll probably be, be out there. Uh, for for a longer run than even they did against San Jose State. All right, Gerard, that is going to wrap up our nightly edition of Composite Two Star Recruits. Another banger, maybe you decide on that one. Gerard, we will be back next week talking about what happened USC versus Nevada, which I'm expecting to be a big, big blowout. We'll see if Chris Cole makes it onto campus for his official visit and keep you updated on everybody we see on the sidelines for another uh, potential recruiting visitors on, on attend on hand for attendance. Gerard, it's late. I'm losing brain cells and I need to edit this podcast. So anything you want to say before we get out of here? No, you guys can uh, contribute to uh, maybe helping USC along with the recruiting process by showing up to these games. One thing we didn't talk about was USC having a season under their belt and the coaching staff knowing that, you know, the environment is something that recruits do look at. And at the beginning of the year, you know, maybe the environment against those type of teams, San Jose State, Nevada, isn't necessarily there. Saw some complaints about that on the pair style. Get to these games, get uh, get loud, get get involved, and uh, maybe you create an environment and an atmosphere which um, you know is a little more uh, conducive to uh, recruiting and uh, having more uh, unofficial visitors there. You got to think that that's something that the coaching staff does uh, have in mind, and and I know that was something that uh, 
you know, seemed to be something that the coaching staffs prior did think about when they were scheduling official visits uh, during the season. So, um, yeah, that's something to, uh, you know, think about with recruiting and unofficial visits and everything else going on. All right. That is Hurricane. I'm 10K. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Composite Two Star Recruits. We will catch you next time. Jeff Leopard sucks!